Welcome to The Dark Divide, a podcast that takes a seat, dangles its legs over the edge, and stares into the abyss. This is the story of Taylor Wright. She stared at the mound of dirt, waiting for it to flinch and separate. If anybody could come crawling back from the dead, it'd be you, she thought. This telltale heart with its pounding in her ears, its relentless thud shaking her bones, its thumping timed to the pulsing of her swollen veins. The dirt and sweat packed onto her skin in the humid heat. The beginnings of calluses marked her palms. She'd been digging and dragging and deciding for hours. <laughs> Sacrifice. She scoffed at the thought. She could write books on the secret suffering of walking a line between two versions of yourself in a very small world. This will be nothing. And then you'll finally be gone. It was worth the trouble to get rid of you. Worth the trouble to get rid of who I had to be when you were around. She made her way inside to the dark, cool heat, the relief bringing back the sickness she felt only briefly before, like a synapse of a forgotten memory. Like regret, almost. She stared at herself in the mirror, softening her gaze over the span of what felt like hours. They'll all ask you how, but you'll die before you tell them a single thing. When major news breaks about a missing person, we're used to hearing about someone who would take the shirt off their own back for a stranger. Someone who had a smile that lit up every room they walked into. Someone who didn't have a single enemy and couldn't hurt a fly. But when the nation was introduced to Taylor Wright, she was still in the middle of her messy story, still working things out and making amends. At only 33 years old, she was still figuring things out and what she wanted next in her life. After a recent divorce, she moved from South Carolina to Pensacola, Florida, which was a bold choice, given that she was co-parenting with her ex-husband Jeff. Things were only getting more vindictive between the two of them. It had gotten to the point where she'd withdrawn thousands and thousands of dollars from their joint bank account, even though it was against court orders. Jeff wasn't just going to let this go, but she kept finding ways to postpone their day in court at the last minute, every single time. Taylor could dish it out just as good as she could take it. It wasn't that she was a bad person. It was just that lately, the chaos of the divorce had catapulted her into this feeling of forced manipulation. She knew her revenge was wrong, but the anger she felt allowed her to rationalize the choices she was making. Taylor didn't plan on these actions becoming some sort of defining moment of her character, and eventually she began to slowly surface from her retaliatory grief and see the value in making amends. But Taylor wasn't reported missing by her ex-husband, Jeff. She was reported missing by her girlfriend, Cassandra Waller. The two hadn't been dating for very long, but they had connected in a really sincere and deep way. At the time she went missing, Taylor was literally in the process of moving her stuff into Cassandra's place. After trying to reach her all day long with no reply or callback, she finally got a response from Taylor that was so out of character for her. I'll call you later. I'm not angry with you, and I should have called, but I just need to think. I'm trying to get my life organized and on track. The new move had been accompanied by a recent confessional to Cassandra about some dabbling in drugs and, worst of all, cheating on her. This was a huge letdown, devastating to Cassandra. And it was so soon into the relationship that she wasn't sure if it was worth sticking it out. But Taylor had promised that it was just a lousy mistake, and she saw a real future with her, something solid and stable. So, no, things hadn't been perfect lately. But for Taylor to text this just didn't make any sense. 
They just had a huge conversation about what their next chapter was. And even though things were crazy, Taylor was excited about moving in and determined to drop everything toxic and start fresh. She'd been fine the night before. She'd been fine that morning they said goodbye. All of this didn't make any sense. And thankfully, even though she had the right to go missing as an adult, police still opened an investigation. At first, law enforcement found that finding Taylor Wright could be like looking for a needle in a haystack. She was a retired police officer slash private investigator. They could be working with someone who was missing on purpose and may very well have the skills to successfully do so. She wasn't necessarily a stranger to dipping out of town without notice, although she never missed phone calls with her son, and she never dropped off the face of the planet to every single person in her contacts list. As strange as that text message was, it appeared that she did have her phone with her, and possibly a huge amount of money, the means to disappear. From the outside looking in, there could be a reason why she wanted to escape. And of course, plenty speculated that her ex-husband could have the motive to make his whole life a lot simpler by Taylor not being around anymore. Police had a fair amount of initial investigating to do, weeding through the layers of her life without tunnel vision. After getting married, Taylor moved to Florida with Jeff, where it made his life as a Marine much easier. At one point, joining the Marines had also been her goal, but a car accident had taken that dream away from her. A new dream, though, soon took hold of Taylor in a way she never imagined. Motherhood was something she absolutely loved, and after their son Drake was born, she held the entire household together during Jeff's deployment. And that didn't slow her down. It only inspired her to want a great career to help provide for her family as well. Given that she really loved psychology and investigative work, Taylor signed up for the police academy and flourished as a cop. She was a really smart person. Anyone who knew her wouldn't doubt her capabilities to lay low, probably for a decent amount of time. Or maybe she was hiding out with someone. Police would take a close look at her life and the people in it. Taylor's family dynamic was simple on paper, but confusing depending on who you talk to. She wasn't close with her parents at all, growing up with brutal memories of a chaotic home. However, she would end up gaining an honorary adoption from an older woman named Nancy, who was never officially her mother, but that was who Taylor would name when she was asked the question. According to Cassandra, if Taylor was feeling desperate or needed help, she wouldn't take off. She'd go to Nancy. But Nancy hadn't heard from Taylor, and she wasn't responding to her either. According to Nancy, the bitterness of the divorce was fueled by Taylor's misunderstanding of it in the first place. On their 10th anniversary, she dressed up for the special night, ready to celebrate and recommit to each other. But Jeff had asked to separate, without a reason. However, Jeff totally disagrees with that, saying that it was actually Taylor who had taken him by surprise, demanding a divorce, telling him that she just didn't want to be with him anymore and it wasn't working for her. Wanting to avoid an ugly legal battle, Jeff claims that he offered Taylor half of everything within a few weeks of the announcement. Half of their time with Drake, half his money, half of their shared property, but that wasn't good enough for her. She wanted full custody of Drake. Things would end up getting vicious between them. There had been numerous times where she would show up at the house screaming and making a scene. After one particular incident, Jeff called the police. Nancy said the version of the story she heard was that when Jeff started filming Taylor, she walked over to him and poked him in the chest. Film that, she yelled. The police charged Taylor with battery. Jeff would eventually drop the charges, and he regretted ever calling the cops, but he felt like Taylor was trying to provoke him, trying to get him to do something that could cost him his job, or even worse, custody of Drake. After that, it wasn't suitable for Taylor to be representing the police force. Given her finances and living situation lacked consistency, Jeff would get full custody of their son. Even though a judge had ordered their accounts to be frozen, Taylor was somehow able to take out $100,000 of their joint money. 
That was the amount she had been rewarded from her car accident lawsuit, and she felt like out of everything, it was the least she was entitled to. Taylor hadn't just outright stolen money from Jeff. She was just rationalizing things out of spite instead of logic. But Jeff wasn't going to let her play dirty. If she wanted to shoot herself in the foot, he was going to shine a light on it every single time. The judge ordered Taylor to return the money, otherwise she'd be held in contempt, fined, and could do jail time. It had come down to the wire, and she was on her final chance to show up and give it back. So when Jeff heard that people were looking for Taylor and she was a no-show for court, this time not even attempting to reschedule, he wasn't worried at first. He figured Taylor was doing what she had repeatedly done, just more dramatically. There was even a part of him that was nervous she would try to show up and take Drake on the run with her. Clearly, September 8th, 2017 hadn't been an ordinary day for Taylor Wright. She was in deep with the courts and had pushed the limit to its furthest point. If she didn't return the money, she would find herself facing actual jail time, and it could also affect her rights as a parent. None of this was worth it, and she was ready to wave the white flag and move on with her life. But when Taylor withdrew that money, she couldn't just take the money. She had to hide the money. She had intended to make sure it was hers to keep, so she hatched an elaborate plan to make sure there was no paper trail to prove that the cash was in her possession. Instead, she gave the money to her good friend Ashley. But strangely, for weeks, Taylor had been trying to get the money back from her with no success. Ashley always had excuses. Too busy, no time, bank was closed, emergency at work. It had come down to the last straw, legally. Taylor needed to give that money back, and Ashley had finally made arrangements to meet up with her and go to the bank. That had been the last time that Cassandra Waller had seen Taylor, when she said goodbye to the both of them in her driveway. Throughout the day, Taylor ignored Cassandra's text messages, which wasn't like her at all. When she called Ashley to see what was up, Ashley said they were out at her family farm, and Taylor was busy riding horses. Given the pressure Taylor was under to meet deadlines and return that money, Cassandra thought it was a little strange for her to be taking it so easy. Even so, she waited. But when she got that strange text, all her worry felt valid. She felt sick to her stomach. Something was wrong. And authorities agreed, beginning the investigation by tracing Taylor's steps that day, hoping to locate her phone and her last known whereabouts. This would lead them to the last person who saw her alive, Ashley MacArthur. Ashley and Taylor were two tough girl peas in a pod from the second they met. It was like a running joke for them. A crime scene tech and a private eye walk into a bar. For every way they were different, there were five in which they were similar— Ashley's husband, Zach, who was also in the PI business, had introduced the two after meeting Taylor about a year before she went missing. That is, if she was even missing. Even though Cassandra had made a report with the police, Ashley was convinced of otherwise. Out of everybody, she seemed the least concerned that her friend hadn't been in touch with anyone in over a week. If anything, she was annoyed and kept saying that this was just typical Taylor. The two of them were really close, and people assumed that Ashley knew more than she was letting on. Mutual friends of the two assumed that if Ashley wasn't worried, then there was most likely nothing to be worried about. But it was still strange for Taylor to drop off the face of the earth when it came to her son. Sure, she punished Jeff throughout the divorce proceedings, but an absent mother, she was not. But Ashley had spent the morning with her, and as out of character as it was for someone who liked to enforce the law and not break it, Taylor had grabbed the money Ashley had been holding for her and skipped town. The police had come out to Ashley's house on September 15th to ask her about that last day. It was just a casual conversation off the record, and Ashley told them that mostly it had been normal. They rode around on the horses at her family farm, around 20 miles outside of Pensacola. Then they both came back to her place, and since Taylor was planning on drinking, she got an Uber and left. The day drinking part wasn't necessarily normal. 
She was just acting like a nut, Ashley told them. This at least gave police a little more to go on, hoping that Taylor's phone records could show her last whereabouts, at least electronically. On September 18th, they talked to Ashley again, needing more clarification. At this point, Taylor had been gone for nine days, and any detail might fill in the missing pieces to the puzzle. And although authorities did have their suspicions about this person who had last seen her, the next three hours were about to tell them more than they were ever expecting to find out. Police would drop by Ashley's home on the 18th, this time recording audio. In trying to track Taylor's last movements, they hadn't been able to match the farm with what she told them. Turns out Ashley's family has two farms, but she couldn't remember the address of the other one. She'd have to get that information for them. Things were starting to get serious, and police were beginning to think that there was more to this than just some angry mother taking off. Cassandra was worried, telling them that Taylor would never do this, that Ashley's attitude about it was the polar opposite. She obviously knew a lot about what Taylor was plotting and going through. Clearing the rest of Ashley's day just like everyone else, as well as getting more details about their interactions that morning, was looking like the most vital part of their investigation. Later that evening, police requested Ashley to come into the station for a proper interview. It's 7.50 p.m. when the nearly three-hour interview begins. Ashley sits in the corner of a small interrogation room with a desk and three chairs. She's in a tank top, shorts, and flip-flops, scrolling through her phone for a few minutes, and once the two male officers join her, the tiny room feels packed. The younger male officer, Richard Gigliotti, sits across from Ashley, while the older officer, Detective Chad Willett, sits off to her right. They ask for her full name, Ashley Britt MacArthur, her birthday, and then they ask about Taylor. How long ago did you two meet? She says it was about a year ago, and that they hang out maybe once or twice a week, depending on what they both have going on. She explains that when they first met, it wasn't often, but later on it was. She brings up an apartment or house that Taylor was staying at in Destin, where she had a roommate named Rain, and she's not sure if they were romantically involved, but I think they were just roommates, she says. Ashley holds her hands, palms up, and laughs, but you never know, which is in reference to the fact that Taylor had married a man, but was recently dating women. The officer laughs with her, saying that's what's making it so difficult, trying to nail down all these different relationships. He asks, if suppose Taylor ran off, where do you think she went, or who do you think she would have gone to? Ashley rolls her eyes and scoffs, shrugging and says she doesn't really know, and starts to talk about a girl in Biloxi, Mississippi named Ginger that Taylor had brought up during a conversation with Cassandra. Richard has spoken to Cass about this too. They nicknamed it Honesty Night, because it was the night that she came clean about quite a few things. Taylor's private life was definitely a little more colorful than some, but the way Ashley explains things, it sounds impossible to undo the tangles. Ashley looks at both of the officers, explaining that it was all confusing. Taylor would show her pictures of big, muscular men on her phone that she found attractive, men similar to the type of her ex-husband. But then she'd turn around and suddenly date a girl, so Ashley didn't know where she was with all of that at any given point. Ashley continues to raise her eyebrows and often keeps them raised a lot when she's talking about Taylor, almost like a gentle disapproval. Clearly judgmental, but not outright accusatory. She brings up Vegas as well, and how one of Taylor's recent trips had been there with a guy. She loves to go there, and apparently had visited three times this year. She says the trips are all over her Facebook. One of them was just at a SHOT show. Richard asks what that is. Ashley looks at the older officer and says, well, you know. But he doesn't either. <laughs> Come on, y'all. She jokes and they laugh together. She explains that it's a trade show for gun lovers. Taylor's been going to a lot of gun shows lately. It's definitely her thing. Ashley's sitting forward with her chest open, but her legs are tightly twisted around each other. Even at the ankle, one foot covers the other. Ankle luck can often be the physical equivalent to biting your lip, and her knees are facing opposite directions, which could indicate that she's feeling a little torn or on guard. 
So the last couple of weeks, can you describe what your interactions have been like? (sighs) Mostly helping her, Ashley scoffs and explains that Taylor had asked her to help move some boxes from another apartment she had with another roommate named Ambra. She was married and Taylor was living with Ambra and her wife after this Destin situation. So Taylor asks if they can move a couple boxes, which ends up filling the entire truck. Ashley waves her hand back and forth. Even after all this, the truck was still at Cass's house. All this, meaning her friend going missing. Taylor also had a storage unit as well, and she tries to describe where it is and how to find it, but it's fuzzy. (laughs) I have no clue, really, she giggles to them. She even describes how the two of them moved a washing machine. Impressive. Since the truck belonged to Ashley's business, she could manage it missing for a few days while Taylor unpacked everything. Ashley laughs and jokes, I didn't sign up to be a mover. I was just asked to move a couple boxes. The following days were as normal as ever. They did brunch for Cassandra's birthday. Ashley peeks at her phone, thinking, she can't really remember the next time they hung out after that. It's hard to say. Taylor would just stop by the house, Ashley says. She gets a text message from someone at her work and replies. The officer uses this as an avenue to ask about her communications with Taylor. They still haven't found Taylor's phone. That's when Ashley says she knew Taylor to only have one phone, until the Friday she last saw her. She was on a phone that looked exactly like hers, except her phone was plugged in and charging. She doesn't know if Taylor ever called her from it, but she doesn't delete any phone calls that she gets, so if it's been within the last month, then they can check. This could be significant, as Ashley is the only person who has ever seen this second phone. They ask permission to dump her cell, promising to look at nothing embarrassing, just information pertaining to Taylor's missing. Ashley laughs with them, but it's different than before. She mimics the expression of laughing on her face, but there's a tightness there, and it dissipates almost as fast as it appeared. Nonetheless, Ashley says she doesn't mind at all. While Chad goes to get the consent forms, Richard explains to Ashley that if they could get even one number that matches Taylor's call log with someone else's call log, then maybe they can get that number and ping it off of nearby towers. Ashley is calmly nodding while he lists off the possibilities of what might have happened to Taylor, but she's also scratching and stroking the palm of her hand with her other thumb ever so slightly. Talking about Taylor's last communications is bringing out repetitive, self-soothing behaviors. I mean, she could have taken off, and that's a whole lot of money for someone to have on them, he brings up the cash that she apparently left with. Ashley tells him that after Honesty Night, Cass and Taylor both had fingerprint access to unlock Taylor's phone, so maybe that's when this other phone appeared and Taylor was just still being dishonest. She signs the forms and hands her phone over. Chad says by the time they're done talking, it should be finished. Mm, so y'all had brunch and then did y'all hang out afterwards? We did. When did y'all get together after that? Um, I don't, it's hard to say because she would just stop by the house, you know, I don't, um, I think I helped her with a couple more things of moving, um, picking up boxes and stuff. She came to my office because she was going to put some stuff there. Um, Did she end up storing some stuff at your office? She's got some stuff and then everything that was left in the truck, we took to my office. So all her junk is at my office. Do you have a warehouse or is the office a warehouse? It's the same, one and the same. Like the front part is offices. Did you frequently communicate with Taylor on that phone? Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. How many phones does Taylor have? I only knew her to have one. Um, I only knew her to have one phone. Until that Friday, I saw a different phone. And the only reason I saw it is because or noticed it because it had the exact same case that her other phone did, but she had one plugged in and then I saw her on the other one. Do you know the number to that other phone? 
Ashley's asked to describe the last day that she saw Taylor. Friday. Was that the 15th, the 8th, or the 1st, Richard asks, looking at his phone calendar. She laughs. I don't know. The 8th? The days run together. What's the last time that you saw her? Um, Ashley scratches her head. The last time I saw her was my house at 4.30. Zach was there too, but she didn't come inside. She picked up Taylor at Cass's place around 10.30 in the morning, explaining that Cass was still there when they left. You're sure she was there when you pulled out of the driveway? Ashley says she's not 100% sure, but she thinks so. She rambles for three or four minutes about the truck in the driveway, older roommates of Cassandra, and why moving the boxes into the house was taking so long. Ashley owns a company called Automatic Amusement Incorporated, a supplier of things like pool tables, arcade games, and jukeboxes. Taylor was looking around, apparently interested in possibly making a purchase down the line. She was also considering storing some of her stuff at the office as well, not wanting to stick more things in her shared unit with Ambra. An employee happened to be there at the time, a homeless man named James that Ashley was allowing to live at the office out of the kindness of her heart. She giggles when it takes her a minute to think of his last name, and then explains how the situation came to be. 
He's such a good guy, Ashley says. He has an alcohol problem, but lately he's been trying to get sober. And he even built her deck, she excitedly adds. He did it all himself with no help or workers. After four minutes of how great James is, the officers bring Ashley back to the morning of Taylor's disappearance, joking about the couple of boxes. Yeah, exactly. Ashley jokingly rolls her eyes. Cass was apparently still annoyed about the truck being there, and Ashley talks about how she thinks Cassandra didn't realize just how much stuff Taylor was bringing over. Everything. He's, he's quite a good worker, so it's very useful for me. Hmm. So y'all, y'all went there to the office. What was your purpose for going there? She just wanted to see if we had enough space for her to put what all she needed to put there. Because, a couple boxes? Yeah, the couple, exactly. <laughs> because I think Cass was pretty annoyed by the truck still being there and the amount of stuff. Because I don't think Cass was aware of how much it was. Because the day that we brought the box truck initially, the day that I helped her move, I was driving my Jeep and James had brought the truck there for them. And when I pull up, they hadn't opened the back of the box truck yet. And Cass had just got home from work. And Taylor's standing there. And I'm like, what? And she's looking at me like, um. And I'm like, what's the matter? And she's like telling Cass, don't panic. It's not all staying. Because, Mm -hmm. I mean, literally, we had filled that truck up. And what she had told me, and I guess what she had told Cass was, it's a couple boxes, you know. And so when... They finally opened up the truck. Cass is like, um, have you seen this house in my house? You know, this is, how are we going to do this? Because she still does have that other roommate, you know, as well, that's staying. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think they're Chris. planning on selling that house, too. After an hour at her office, they went back to Ashley's house to get paperwork and the money that she was hiding for her. The money was there for only a few days, before that Taylor had it. This whole thing about a safety deposit box hadn't actually happened yet. Taylor wanted to get one, but she didn't want a paper trail for Jeff to find. So Ashley decided that she'd hang on to the money and give it to Taylor when she needed it. It was all super confusing to Ashley, though. I don't know why Taylor did the things she did. Apparently, Taylor left with 20 grand cash and a few cashier checks, large amounts, at least 30 or 40,000 each. She says it was normal for Taylor to try and cash checks as big as 80 grand at the bank. Ashley had seen it. The bank would most likely remember her, Ashley said. She was really rude to them. She went back the next day as well, basically stockpiling cash. And Ashley says that she didn't mind holding onto the cash for her. She's always home, and she lives in a nice neighborhood, implying that the money wouldn't disappear. But she still didn't understand why she was having to hold onto the money. Apparently, Taylor owned a safe of her own that was at Amber's house. So you went back to Raintree? Right. And what were, what was your purpose for going back there? Um, to get the, any of the papers that I had for her and the money and stuff for her. So the money was being kept at your house? Right. How long had the money been being kept there? Um, it was only there for a few, a few days. Where was it at before that? Taylor had it. Okay. So this whole thing about a safety deposit box of yours, you know, anything about that? Well, Taylor wanted to get a safety deposit box initially, and but she didn't want her name or anything to be on anything that Jeff could find. Sure. So I was like, we'll just keep it and give it to you or whatever, because I don't know why she didn't keep it. She has a safe. Yeah, And I don't know if it had to do with she didn't want cats involved with any. I, I don't know. There's hard. It's hard to say 
what was going through her head because I don't know why she was doing a lot of the stuff that she was doing. So you had the money for, do you recall what day and how that conversation was brought up? Like, hey, 30 grand, keep it yeah, it's cool. It was only 20 and it was, then she had other cashier's checks. So it was 20 grand and other cashier's checks. Right. Do you know how much money in cashier's checks it was? Not really. I didn't really look at them. She only it was like $500 cashier's checks or $50,000 cashier's checks. My understanding was that they were like large amount checks. What's large? Cause like <laughs> probably thirty or 40000 That's large. It's more than what, really I, it's what I make in a year, so that's pretty large. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's large. Just a, some people are, are different, yeah. Because she had taken out money, which I don't know what she did with, um, before in cashier checks from Navy Federal. Um, and she was pretty furious about, actually, I was with her that day. She had like an 80-something thousand dollar cashier's check, and she um, wanted to get all the cash, and they wouldn't give it to her. I don't have that much cash in a bank. Probably not. And so, I don't and I don't know why she wanted it or what, you know, she was going to do with it or whatever. Do um, you recall when that was? Not specifically, but... Um, I mean, we talked about months back or no probably sometime in august okay that she went to the bank and was asking for 80 grand yeah did you take her i was with her what bank was that maybe federal you know branch um davis and Lingle. oh she was really rude like <laughs> to the people like i mean i'm sure they will remember because like she was kind of nasty to them okay did she get any cash that day she got I think fifteen thousand is what they would give her. They put the rest back in more cashier's check. Mm-hmm. And then my understanding is she went the next day and got more cash. Um, I wasn't with her, but that's what they told her she could do, and that's what she was she was doing. So she was just going back trying to get as much cash as she could out of this cashier's check. I guess, but I don't know what she was doing with it. And all this was in August? Probably in July, August, yeah. And how did the conversation come up with the, with her leaving the money at your house? She just asked me if I would keep it. And how did that go? Yeah, okay? Or, sure. I mean, our neighborhood is an easy neighborhood. It's hardly have neighborhood. any kind of issues or whatever there. But I don't understand why she wasn't putting it in her safe. Because she has a safe at Amber's house. And then she was moving it to Cassid. Did she move the safe to Cassid? Well, it went there, but then I don't know why they ended up not taking it out of the truck, but of course now it's all at my office. The, the safe is at your office? Yeah, all that junk is at my office. Do you, do you know what's in that safe? I don't. Like, when we moved it, it was open and popped in, like, when we trying to put it in the truck, it popped open, and then she ended up closing it, but I don't think there was anything in it because the door popped open. But whether she had all that other cash that she had taken out before in there, I don't know, but it was with her at that house. That's one I know. 
While Ashley describes her day, the officers make note of the routes that they drove. They went from the warehouse to Ashley's house for about 20 minutes or so, and then back to Cassandra's place. She sat in the truck while Taylor went inside to apparently grab some paperwork. After that, they went by one of the houses that Taylor was interested in purchasing. But Ashley can't remember what house. Maybe she could find it again, but she wasn't really paying attention, and Taylor didn't point it out to her. In her first interview, Ashley had mentioned they also stopped at a gas station around this time. Taylor was on her phone outside, and Ashley went inside and got something to drink, as well as another beer for Taylor, who'd been day drinking out of her Yeti mug. Ashley had never seen her drink in the morning like that, so it was definitely odd behavior. She didn't know Taylor to drink much, period. They had also driven past a house involved in a case that Taylor was looking into, something involving insurance. And the police are interested, because even if it's far-fetched, Taylor could have pissed off the wrong person in her line of PI work. But Ashley says she doesn't think she was one to really investigate infidelity or criminal-type cases, things much lighter than that. After that, they went to the farm. Taylor wanted to drink beer and ride horses and just relax her mind. Things were stressful in her life, but other than the drinking, it was pretty much a normal day. Went to the store. What did y'all do at the store? She was on the phone, and I went in the store, got a drink, and got her another beer. How much had she been drinking that day? She had a like a yeti type cup thing full of beer. I mean, was she like intoxicated? Like she didn't seem to be, but I mean, I don't drink. Sure. I mean, did she seem like she was getting a little buzzed? Not really. I mean, I didn't drink that. Have you ever seen her drinking at that time of day before? No. That was odd behavior. And in fact, I said something to her. I was like, beer at this time of the morning? She was like, well, it's five o'clock somewhere. I'm like, (laughs) it's a perfect response for for any argument. (laughs) Well, I'm like, brutal. Well, thank you. Sweet. That's an awesome argument. I didn't even really know her to really drink much. Like, she's never drank much around me, other than maybe, like, a beer with dinner or something like that. Like, I've never seen her, I've never seen her drunk or... So, you left the store and went where? That's when we went to go look at the, to see if, I guess, the vehicle was at the restaurant. Residence along Phoenix Highway. Went down over the highway, then you went to the store, then you went and looked at the residence. No, we went, drove past whatever house she was looking at on Beale Road, mm-hmm. and then we went to the store, and then we went to see if that, I guess the vehicle she was looking for was at a residence Different. on Phoenix Highway. On Phoenix, okay. I yeah. Um, did she point out the house? Did y'all pull in the driveway or anything like that? No. But she just wanted to drive-by. I mean, I guess she was just looking for the vehicle. Do you recall where that house was? It's north of the interstate. Um, and to your knowledge, this was an insurance-type case? That was my understanding. Did you ever feel like she was being, like, deceitful about that? Not really, but I really wasn't paying much attention, you know. You know. Yeah, and the reason I ask these questions is because if it's just an insurance-type fraud or some guy saying, oh, it hurt my leg getting more money. I'm not saying that that person's like harmless, but I would say that there's probably less danger than if she was investigating something else or other things. She's never told me that she's investigated any kind of like infidelity cases or criminal type cases. I know that she said that she was getting 
she was getting some new type of case, but I don't, I didn't get the impression that this was that case. Okay. So, we got drove by there on scenic, then where? Then we went, that's where we went to the farm. Okay. Now, was the farm something that was a planned thing? No, she just said she wanted to drink a beer, and we had talked about the farm because when they had gone, Kath and Drake and Taylor had gone to visit her mom, I guess, in Tallahassee, not that long before, and they were talking about, you know, they have animals and goats and all that stuff, and this was a family farm that I had, and so we just she was like, well, let me see, because her mom has stuff like that, and so we just drove out there, and she was just going off the team, I guess, and drinking beer, and <laughs> we were just hanging out. I mean, it really wasn't a very odd day. Yeah. I didn't get the impression that, I mean, she was upset about the Jeff situation, but, like, it wasn't unusual for Taylor to call me and be like, hey, do you just want to come ride around with me today, or whatever, and most of the time I didn't, because I had to work, but... She'd call and say, I just want to come hang out and skibble and sit at home, I guess, and hmm. whatever. She's a strange girl. <laughs> okay. Had Taylor asked to get the money from you any time before that day? Ashley says yes. She had been super busy that week because of helping Taylor move the week before. She had a million things going on. So did Taylor. Ashley strays from any specifics here. Everybody was just running around and doing whatever. And her answer conflicts with what she just said about holding on to the money for a few days. Now, she says the money was at her house for a couple weeks. You say that um, that day she asked to get that money was part of one of the things that she wanted to get the money from your place. Right. Um... Had she had had she asked before that at any point to go get the money? Yeah, and I had been super busy that week because of the what we had done before that the week before, and I had just eight million things going on. She had we'd we were actually supposed to do it the day that she had the um, box truck moving it, and then they ended up just doing all that instead of... So that week before, mm-hmm. you just been busy so you couldn't take her to get the money? And I just, well, I just, she had, she was going to come by the house. I told her to come by the house, and everybody was just running around and doing whatever, so... And how long was the money at the house? Probably a couple, just a couple weeks. Okay. They clarify that she has never had a safety deposit box, whether at the bank or at home. So she's just as confused as Richard when it comes to the fact that Taylor had apparently told people that Ashley was storing money there. Well, she wanted to get one, and then she wanted us to get one together, so I don't know why the whole deal really occurred. She trails off. Chad asks why she would have wanted them to share a safety deposit box, and Ashley shakes her head, looking down, closes her eyes, and says she doesn't know. Then she looks up at the ceiling and says everything she does is kind of, and Ashley makes a face of extreme annoyance. Ashley sheepishly admits, I know she was trying to hide money from the Jeff situation. Richard assures her, that's a civil matter. She's not going to get in trouble for holding money for her friend. Their main goal is just to figure out where she is. Moving her stuff and borrowing her truck wasn't the only thing Taylor had recently done to annoy Ashley. I wouldn't have anything to do with this if it wasn't, you know, like, this is a pain in the ass for me. Ashley laughs and Richard jokes with her. All of us. It really is, Ashley continues. Because now I'm stuck with all her stuff at my office, even before all this goes on. Ashley says that she doesn't even seem to know who Taylor really was at all. Yet Ashley knows most of the secretive and manipulative tactics that she was using behind the scenes. 
She explains that Taylor's chaotic choices were affecting everyone. Even her husband had begged her to stop helping Taylor out, but Ashley just couldn't say no to a friend. I didn't see her as a bad person, but maybe I was too naive, she tells them. And I don't know why she wanted to make it seem like she had a safety deposit box. That's what's very peculiar to me. That's why I'm asking these questions, because it's come out that there was a safety deposit box, apparently, in your name. And I don't, I don't care if you have one or not. It's not that I, it's just, it's peculiar that, that folks are telling us that there was one and that she, apparently she has been telling people that There's she no has one. one. But, but she wanted to get one. And then she wanted to get uh, us to get one together. So I don't know why the whole deal really occurred. Why would she want you two to get one together? That's odd. I have no idea. Everything that she does is kind of, <laughs> but I mean, she would call me and be like, well, let's go do this. Let's go do that. Let's, and then she'd call and change her mind. And she'd be like, well, the only way I could take it is she was very, very upset about what was going on with court. And I, I mean, I know she was trying to hide money from the Jeff situation, but. And understand, that's a civil matter. That's not something we're concerned about. Oh, I know. I don't care if she was hiding a million dollars from Jeff. I'm not Jeff. No, I know. He's not had money for me. If it, if it, <laughs> like, I wouldn't have to have anything to do with this if she wasn't trying to. I mean, this is a pain in the ass for me. Sure. You know? Sure. And all of us. Well, I mean, it really is because, sure. like, now I'm stuck with all of her stuff at my office. And, you know, even before all this goes on, it's she's got the truck for a week and this and that. I mean, just trying to help her and. Of course, the story that I get is a very sob story about how Jeff's taken all this money and he took all this stuff from her and now she's just, you know, trying to hide it and move it and do all kind of just shady stuff with it. And, like, she's overinflating credit cards and stuff. Paying more right, than like, the bill. Like paying more than so if you owe five hundred dollars total, she pays more than the five. Like two thousand or something. Adding so she has like fifteen hundred dollars credit. credit. Yeah, and it's hard for me because I don't. I guess I didn't know who she was until a lot of this. Because what I knew her to be was one thing, and now what I'm finding out is we're hearing that something totally different. She she appears to, to confide in you a lot though. Well, and that's a, and that's the thing that like I don't understand like. We, I thought we were very close, but then yet I don't know about this ginger situation with Lexi until the day it comes up. I, I didn't know her to be, like, to lie to me, you know, and she was, and in fact that day that all that happened, she was like, you know, I felt bad for Cass, but it hurt me that I lied to you about the drugs and whatever else. And I'm like, well, you know, that's not anything that you can't fix. I mean, it's, you did drugs a couple times. Okay, it's bad, but stop. Was her husband home? Did he hear all this? No, he wasn't there that day. Like, he, he, did he know every detail of y'all's relationship and last time y'all hung out and all that stuff? He probably doesn't because probably he gets a good thing, angry with <laughs> yeah. me. He would get angry with me for hanging out because he's like, stop helping her, stop helping her, stop helping her. And I'm like, because I just didn't see her as a bad person. I mean, she may well, not be but decisions. maybe... Maybe I was too naive, whatever, I don't know. I just felt like the way that she put everything to me was like she was just trying to get her life together, to get her kid, to get back on her feet, and that Jeff had done so much 
you know, to her to take away all of this money that she had and everything else. It just was, and so, of course, I feel bad for her. And I'm like, okay, well, do whatever you need me to do, you know, I'll help you. Because I feel like she was kind of alone other than, you know, Cass. And she wasn't course, late. I've known her, you know, a little bit longer, you know, than Cass has. And so, you know, I was willing to help her. But then half the stuff that I thought to be true, now I find out isn't true. Or allegedly isn't true. I mean, I don't know. Because everybody has such a, it's like a wild roller coaster of stories. And I'm just like, are you kidding? Yeah. How do you piece through it? Richard circles back to the farm since they spent some time there riding horses. Ashley tells him that the farm is off the highway in Milton, the address she gave them before. They were there for about an hour or so before going back to Ashley's place. Nothing seemed off. Taylor said she was going to get an Uber to go have a beer. Ashley offered to drive her back to her car, but Taylor planned on drinking and didn't want to be behind the wheel. Ashley isn't sure if it was a friend or an Uber that picked her up, though, because she had run inside the house, and since Zach was home and he can't stand Taylor, Taylor stayed outside. By the time Ashley came back out, Taylor was gone. She even left all her stuff in the truck, so Ashley brought it over to Cassandra's place soon after. Richard asks about Cassandra's demeanor, and Ashley said it was fine enough, although Taylor was really torn about moving in with her. The infidelity was an issue, and even more so, Taylor is a wild person, and Cass was just too reserved for someone like her. Richard asks if she has ever been romantically involved with Taylor, and she says no. Taylor asked her to be in a threesome with another guy once, but she said it wasn't her thing. And this was as recent as the week before, while they were moving stuff into Cassandra's place. And speaking of Cassandra, Ashley assures them that she isn't the jealous type. There was no issue about how often they spend time together. The officer to her right, who has been playing a more direct and straightforward role during the interview, asks her point-blank if she knows who harmed Taylor. Ashley says she doesn't know if Taylor's been harmed. Did you harm her? He asks. No, I didn't, she says while emphasizing the point with wide eyes and raised eyebrows. Taylor is a tough person. She's always carrying weapons with her. She is not an easy target, Ashley tells them. That being said, the only thing that does give her a bit of worry is the drugs. Even though Taylor had told Cassandra that she only tried cocaine a couple times, Ashley describes her as living an extremely high-risk lifestyle for substances. And when it comes to the places she could be, the list is nearly endless. Taylor never talked about hiding, but she had told someone, maybe it was Cass, that she could just disappear if she wanted to. Ashley adds that Taylor often used cash, but she also had a few other bank accounts, so maybe she could be using one of those cards. And Ashley makes it sound like Taylor has connections in every city, a place to stay, and a person willing to hide her if she needs it. Do you know who harmed Taylor? No, I don't. I don't know that she's been harmed. Did you harm her? No, I didn't. Do you know if Cass has harmed her? No. I wouldn't think so. Like, I don't, I don't believe Taylor's been harmed. I just... I think Taylor's doing what Taylor does, but I don't know, you know, I, the only thing that I can think, Taylor is a very tough person. She's always come across as being tough and never made it anything other than, you know, she's always carrying weapons, whether it's knives or guns or whatever. Um, she's not an easy target. She's seems to always have everything together to a degree. The only thing I worry about is with the drug situation. Like, I wouldn't even, if I didn't know about the drug situation, I wouldn't be worried about her. I would say Taylor's doing what Taylor does. 
but then that lifestyle becomes a different group of people. Sure. Which is what I worry about with her. Sure. And we don't know that she ever had intentions on leaving. Maybe she wanted to go have fun, and then someone found her with a bag full of cash. And that's that's why we we have to follow down every single avenue and ask all these. Talk about questions. all the vacation spots and all that stuff. Have you talked to her about that? We didn't get into that. Did she ever talk about where she would go if she wanted to hide? She never talked to me about hiding. She talked to somebody, and I don't remember who. It was. Maybe it was Cass, that she could just disappear if she wanted to. The only places I know her to go is Vegas, Savannah, Georgia, Dustin. I think her mom lives somewhere around Tallahassee. I know she has friends in Jacksonville. Ashley highlights more aspects of Taylor's character. She didn't know her to be a liar, except when she was trying to hide all this money. But now, with all this, she's rethinking everything. Maybe her husband wasn't such a bad guy after all. Maybe it's Taylor that's the volatile one. And her habits could have led her to Vegas again. She doesn't just love to go. Ashley says she has a serious gambling problem. She tells them a story about going to New Orleans for a girl's trip on her 40th birthday in August last month. Taylor had planned the whole thing, and Ashley was apathetic at best, but carved out the time. Ashley's friend Audrey, who was dealing with the death of her mother, still made time for Ashley's birthday, only to have a gallbladder attack on the way there and end up in a New Orleans hospital for weeks. She wraps up the story with how sacrificial in nature she tends to be. Even though it was her birthday, she spent it in the hospital visiting her friend as much as she could. Audrey wasn't even discharged in time to make it to her own mother's funeral. What a horrible experience for Ashley, who rolls her eyes with annoyance as she lists all the things that she did for Audrey. What's also really impressive is that Ashley has a hard time remembering where banks and farms and houses are in her own state, but she has a great recollection of streets and sites in New Orleans. This eventful situation last month is more fresh in her memory than all of the things she's done in the last two weeks. Ashley wraps up by saying the whole point of this story is that Taylor spent a lot of her time at the casino with Cassandra while she was in the hospital with Audrey. Taylor knew that you could get cheap or free parking at the casino, and Ashley says that must mean that she spends a lot of time there. Taylor decides that she wants to take me to New Orleans for my 40th birthday, because I just want to turn 40. Well, sure, we'll go. And she plans the weekend, gets a hotel, all this. It's supposed to be me and Taylor and my friend Audrey and Kat. Well, my friend Audrey, the Friday before um, we're supposed to go to New Orleans, she calls me on the phone and she's like, hey, you need to come to my house. My mom's dead. Well, Audrey was supposed to go with us. And I had to have a busy work week, too. So it was like, I told Taylor, I said, you know, I'm sorry. I don't know that I'm going to be able to make it. I'm like, I am swamped at work. Now, Audrey, I don't think, can go because her mom just died. So, you know, you and Kath go up on, I don't think I can go. She's like, well, you know, please try to come, please try to come, please try to come. I'm like, we'll figure it out. I'll do the best I can. But I know I can. I'll leave on Friday because I just have too much work to do. So I'll try to get up and come Saturday morning. And if Audrey can get a babysitter for the night, maybe it'll be good for her to get out because, you know, her mom did just die, whatever. So Audrey gets a babysitter. We go to leave. We get across the Pontchartrain Bridge. Audrey goes, you got to pull over. I think I'm having a heart attack. I'm like, what? <laughs> She's like, yeah. So I'm driving from the Pontchartrain Bridge to towards downtown New Orleans at like 9500 at Canal Street, University Medical Center is right there. Sure. And I go to New Orleans a lot, so I knew where it was. And Tulane Medical Center is just right there. So I'm like, okay, I can get you to a hospital. I know where there's one. We pull in there, take Audrey inside. 
they end up admitting her. Her gallbladder has ruptured or whatever, and she is having, like, a gallbladder attack and has gallstones and a dust and all this. Her mom's funeral, this was the Saturday, her mom's funeral was the Monday. She had surgery on Tuesday. She missed her mom's funeral because she is stuck in New Orleans in the hospital. She didn't even get to come home until the following Wednesday. So my trip to New Orleans for my 40th birthday was hanging out with friends in the hospital because that night, Catherine Taylor came to the hospital to see her. I ended up leaving the hospital at like 3 o'clock in the morning, went to the room, slept, went back to the hospital, hung out with Audrey. Then I, of course, we planned on going home on Sunday, so I had to go home because I have stuff for work. Then on Monday when I got done with my work stuff, I drove back over to check on Audrey in the hospital, drove back to Pensacola. In one day. Oh yeah, but you're what a good ha- well, but what happened was her her dad couldn't come to her. Nobody could because her mom's service was that day, so she had no family that could even go over there and check on her. So the poor girl stuck in another town in a hospital by herself, you know, facing surgery. And I'm like, well, I'll drive over here. I go, you know, I went to the store, got her Sprite and Jello and whatever else she could eat, toothbrush. And then finally, the next thing, her dad was able to go, so I. It took it off my relief, you know. But, so that was our trip. But the point of that story was, I know that the Friday night, I wasn't there, I know that Taylor and Cass had spent a bunch of time at Harrah's. And my impression was that Taylor probably did spend a lot of time at Harrah's in New Orleans. Richard and Ashley are left alone for a few minutes while Chad goes and checks on the status of her phone dump. While he's gone, Ashley says the Saturday after that Friday, she had a wedding to go to. Taylor had basically invited herself along. Of course, she didn't make it. She didn't respond to Ashley's text if she was still going to come. The only reason she wanted to go to the wedding, Ashley says, is to see another woman that was there, which made no sense because she thought she was trying to make things work with Cassandra. When Chad returns, Ashley retells him the story quickly. The wedding was actually for a couple that are police officers in town, so Ashley brings them up by name and they nod together, almost as if all three of them are friends or run in the same circles. He updates them on the phone dump. I guess you deleted a lot of stuff, so it's taking a while, he explains. Oh, sorry, Ashley says as she grits her teeth. Earlier, she explained that she pretty much never deletes anything off of her phone, unless it was spam or something she didn't need. We're trying to get it done, he assures her, and she plasters on an expression of laughing, but she isn't laughing. Ashley says Taylor was the kind of person who always wanted to be seen as super badass. She talked about her martial arts training, she had tactical gear everywhere, she was way into guns. There wasn't a soft side to Taylor. Ashley talks about her in the past tense again. She says she was never womanly, and she was the controller of the relationship with Cass. Taylor thinks that she's for sure smarter than everybody else. She's just always that way. She describes how Taylor would regularly brag about how intelligent she was. Richard asks about the Uber ride. He wants to know who ordered it, and Ashley says she doesn't know, and thinks about it for a few seconds. They've never taken one before, she's never known her to use Uber, and she doesn't even know if Taylor has the app on her phone. And she wouldn't have been able to check because she always had her phone locked up. But that's just the way she is with, like, everything, Ashley scoffs. I mean, she keeps her tampons in an ammunition box. Where do you think we can find her? My gut says Destin, Ashley tells them. I don't think she's far. I think she has more friends in Destin than she's told us about. And randomly, they follow up with asking if she's ever talked about disposing of a body. Taylor always joked about putting people in a pig farm. She doesn't know why. Would pigs eat human flesh? Ashley believes it. She is a pet pig, and he's ravenous. Do you know if she has an Uber account on her phone? I've never 
But that's just the way she is, like everything. Like she keeps her tampons in an ammunition box. Alrighty. Yeah. Taxes are <laughs> All things practical. Yeah, you never know when. Uh, you know. Where do you think we can find her? My gut says Dustin. I don't think she's far. I think she would have gotten her. I believe that she probably has more friends than Dustin than she's told us about. I mean, she lived there for quite some time. Has she ever <laughs> talked about, like, how she would dispose of a body? Have y'all talked about any of that stuff yet? No. Taylor always jokes about, like, putting people at a pink farm. What was that going to do? I don't know. It's this work. Yeah, he was supposed to be this work. For a while, pigs will eat humans if they're... I would believe it because chopped up and stuff. My pig eats something all day long in my yard, and what it is, I don't know. They ask if there's anything she can think of that they haven't covered. She starts talking about the possibility of Savannah, Georgia, and also listing sexual and romantic possibilities for Taylor on both hands. She says she's not sure how many of these people are actually real or not. She just saw photos on her camera roll. There's someone in New York. There's two or three Jessicas. For Ashley, Taylor's life is impossible to sort out. She also brings up her sexuality again, frustrated with Taylor. You either like men or you don't. Ashley didn't have that problem. And for some reason, it bothers her that Taylor couldn't decide. So she could be anywhere, with anyone. Man, woman, stranger, friend. Ashley had no idea. She laughs, explaining this dilemma of their friendship. As hard as it is to keep track of all these names and connections, the police are interested in everyone and anyone. If Taylor is a tough girl, it would take someone equally tough or stronger to have harmed her. So they ask about these people, their body builds, their relationships to her. But Ashley knows very little besides names and locations. Richard says that's part of the challenge. They're being given lots of names, but they aren't exactly sure what the significance might be. And Ashley agrees. That's the problem. I don't think anybody knows. Taylor appears now that I've learned all this stuff to just be a chameleon who changes and shapeshifts to whatever person she's around and gives them whatever impression she needs to give them. It's been two hours of conversation, and honestly, little ground has been covered. But the temperature is about to heat up a few degrees, because what Ashley doesn't know is that the officers are privy to a few bits of information that she's withheld. They aren't exactly sure of her reasons for that, though, but it's time to find out. Richard asks about the second farm. You said there was another farm up in the north end of the county. Mm-hmm, Ashley says, biting her lip. Can you elaborate on that? Another aunt of mine has it, Ashley says while she uncrosses and crosses her legs and shakes her head slightly back and forth as if she's shaking her head no. She can't remember the road that it's on, but she can get that information for him. She swings her top leg a few times in the air. Taylor's never been there, she says. Chad goes to check the status of the phone, leaving her alone with Richard once again. Ashley goes on about how she doesn't know whether to be worried or mad at Taylor. And Richard says, we don't either. Cass doesn't either. This actually is more baiting than anything. Cassandra was the one who reported Taylor missing, who kept pushing the police to look into it, and she's already spoken with them at length, convinced them that something horrible has happened. So police are curious about why Ashley is the only person who isn't stressed in the least about Taylor's disappearance, but they want her to think she's not alone in that feeling. In reality, it's far-fetched that Taylor Wright has connections all over the country, and that all of these connections would agree to house a missing woman on the news. What would be the motive for all that? Ashley is closer to her than anyone else. What does she think? Ashley says she just doesn't know. She doesn't even know who Taylor is, obviously. Between the drugs, the custody battle, the money hiding, who could make sense of it all? Ashley nods in agreement when Richard says that all they need is just any confirmation that she's alive. 
Any time of day or night, if she hears from Taylor, just let him know, because so many people are involved at this point. It's taking massive resources. He mentions that the other officer Chad would probably rather be at home with his family right now. Richard is, of course, placing down more breadcrumbs. They love their jobs. They care about their community. Looking for a missing woman isn't an annoyance for them. But Ashley agrees and devours the bait, because this is an inconvenience for her. You know, and if it turns out that she's like, hey, you know, she contacts you and she says, hey, please don't tell the police, but I'm good. Just please, God, please just call me and let me know or text me. Yeah, I don't care what time of day or night, just please let me know because a lot of people are getting involved with this. Poor Chad's got drugged into this. Uh, I'm sure he wants to be home with his family. Oh, sure. Um, Everybody does. Well, it's like this is, you know, an inconvenience to me. Sure, your husband's I mean, at home. He's, just, you know... And I You're guess waiting for him like, to cook for you. All of this is has been now because like now I have to deal with all her junk at my warehouse. Now I have to, you know, we had to go have the truck moved and this and that. And she didn't do what she told me she was gonna do with that and empty it out and whatever. Kind of dumps everything on everybody. Sure. And I, I mean, I hate that for Kath too because now she's like, she's in a, all this shit. She's in a very odd position because she wants to help. Or she comes off as if she wants to help. I genuinely think she does. Chad returns, explaining they're still working on the phone dump, and he asks about pictures that she sent to Cassandra of guns and knives. Ashley says that was stuff they found in Taylor's car. They ask if she's ever seen any of Taylor's guns, and she says no. Not besides the one she conceals and carries, which she makes known to everyone. Yeah, there's a gun they can't find, Richard says. Maybe she has that on her. Ashley looks down and shakes her head from side to side, as if to say, who could know? Richard asks how Taylor's demeanor was at the farm, and Ashley says everything was fine. What did y'all do out there? She lists how they went to go see the animals while she looks down at the desk. Ashley was looking at horses while Taylor was walking around looking at other things or whatever. She did some beer, but she didn't seem like she was on drugs. Ashley continues to ramble on for 10 minutes. She talks a lot, but there's very little substance to what she's saying. For someone familiar with crime scene investigation, she's either extremely good at knowing what not to mention, or ignorant to what's important to a case. While Chad checks out of the room again, Richard and Ashley talk about the chaos of the investigation. I can understand why you want to pull your hair out, because I want to pull my hair out too after learning all this, Ashley says. I mean, you think you know somebody, and you try to help them, and come to find out you have no clue who they are, and you're like, what? I let my child around this person, and I don't even know you. I, I can understand why you want to pull your hair out, because yeah. like I want to pull mine out just with having to yeah. learn all this, you know, because... You think you know somebody, you think you try to help them, and then then you come to find out, like, you have no clue who they are. And it's just like, what? I let my child around this person, and I don't know, you know? Yeah. Richard lets out an exhausted sigh and leaves the room, while Ashley sits alone for a minute, examining her hands and picking at her fingernails. He comes back explaining that her husband was just wondering where she was. He told them these things take time. Well, this is confusing, Ashley agrees. It's hard to piece together. Richard explains that he's getting different answers from Ashley than everyone else, but cleverly shifts the blame of this to Taylor, the hiding chameleon on the run. It wouldn't be hard for her to survive off the grid for a while with her skills, and according to Ashley, she left with thousands and thousands in cash. But that could also make her vulnerable. Anything could happen. People will rob and kill you for $5, Ashley says in agreement. By this point, it's nearing the three-hour mark. It's late, and the loose ends of all this information needs to settle and be looked into. Richard wraps up by reminding her to get the information about that other farm and leaves the room for a few minutes. 
Ashley again looks at her hands, front to back, and begins to pick at her fingernails. She leans forward with her elbows on the desk until both officers return. Her phone dump is still taking time, so Ashley volunteers to leave it there overnight and grab it in the morning. Authorities can initially look at a few things on a phone and sometimes see the obvious connections, but because so much of Taylor's last day allegedly involved driving around all over town, it would take some time for them to map out pings and notifications about where she was. And since Ashley seemed to struggle remembering certain things about the day before and after her disappearance, phone records would be a concrete way to map out some sort of geographical timeline. On September 24th, Ashley called the police station asking if there were any updates on the case. She again pushed the idea of Taylor being in Destin, telling the police that she was putting everyone's life through hell. I'm mad at her, Ashley said. This is stupid and causing everyone heartache and sleepless nights. She called again about a week later on October 2nd, but there were still no updates for them to share with her. She told them that they should start checking treatment facilities. Even though Taylor claimed to only try cocaine a couple of times, Ashley was convinced that it was a lot more, and that her so-called friend was just living a massive double life. Although, the idea of Taylor going from a completely functioning adult to an absolute disaster of an addict in such a short time with nobody being the wiser is a far-fetched theory. And by this time, Taylor Wright had become national news for weeks. Why would anyone willingly hide her? And if someone hurt her, then police needed to trace every single step Taylor took that day once she left Ashley's driveway. By the time the detectives ask Ashley to come back for another interview on October 19th, they've had a complete workup of Taylor and Ashley's phone records, and they have follow-up questions for all of the half-answers that she gave them a month prior. This far into the investigation, they aren't looking for maybes and possiblys. And now they're just filling in a few final pieces to the puzzle. The inkling they'd had about Ashley had now moved from person of interest to prime suspect. She waits for a few minutes, appearing casual, resting her elbow on the desk with her chin in her hand. She's in a long-sleeve white shirt, blue jeans, and flip-flops. The same detectives as before join her. Richard puts a big white binder down on the table between them. It's massive, with tons of sticky tabs along the side. Chad asks how she is, and she makes a disgusted face, saying that she's tired. Didn't sleep well? It doesn't have anything to do with Taylor, though, who has now been missing for well over a month. She's just got a lot going on at the office. Lots of things to do, including volunteering work for injured first responders. And it would be impressive, altruistic even, if it weren't for the fact that one of her closest friends is missing, and she's taken absolutely no action when it comes to the mission of finding her. As she goes on to complain in detail, she doesn't even turn her head once to look at Chad. She keeps her eyes down on the ground, looking at Richard scribbling some things, or glances up at the camera in the top corner of the room. She sits back and crosses her arms. Ashley's on guard. Richard gives Ashley her phone back, and they start to talk about how she's been doing. Ashley chews her gum tensely and says, All right, just busy. As they start to talk, she mentions how Jeff had recently asked her what she knew about Taylor. And she says she doesn't know a lot about Taylor's nightlife, because they didn't go out a lot together like that. In the first interview, Ashley said that she knew a bit about at least seven people in Taylor's life that she'd been dating, plus her ex-husband and Cassandra. But now she's saying that she really has no idea what's going on in that part of her life either. Other than Cass, they don't have mutual friends and they don't run in the same circles. Ashley again brings up the fact that she just has no idea who Taylor really is. They ask her about Jeff's demeanor, explaining that they just have to keep looking at everyone at this point. And then Richard seamlessly moves into letting Ashley know that they've uncovered some things that need more clarification. She says right, and continues to tensely chew faster. Before things shift gears, Richard brings up the custody issues again going on with Jeff, because at this point, they don't really know who is involved with what. But it's clear that Jeff had no intent on letting her have that child. At this point, I don't think she needs him right now. Ashley goes for the jugular again against her friend with another slight. A mother herself. She doesn't seem concerned about whether Drake needs his. 
The interview moves into official interrogation territory, and Richard reads Ashley her rights. Instead of information gathering in a passive, non-accusatory way, an interrogation opens the door to a more aggressive approach. The purpose moves from getting answers to eliciting the truth. Richard asks about some bank records they found because Ashley added Taylor to one of her accounts. Apparently, it was for a t-shirt business, but Ashley doesn't get into many specifics. She says, stuff like that, five times. They hadn't worked everything out with the arrangements, but she's implying that Taylor wanted to start selling t-shirts along with tactical gear at gun shows. They both went to the bank sometime in early August to add her name. Well, and well like I said, we've been looking into it. Um, we've had to look into everyone, obviously. I'm sure you can imagine with, with the knowledge you do have of law enforcement. we we got to look into everyone. So um, we've been doing it, and, you know, we've turned up some things that we don't, we don't really know what to think at this point. So we don't know who's involved with what, right? Um, like I said before, I don't know if Jeff's involvement. Obviously, there's probably some bitter feelings over the, the money issue and the child and Drake and all. I'm sure you know, she loved Drake or loves Drake, but um, obviously Jeff has probably no intent on letting Taylor have that child. I don't think she needs him right now. Yeah. When we were conducting our investigation, we've come across, like I said, several things. We don't know whether it's civil or something y'all had agreements on or whatever. So um, I was going to ask you about them if you don't mind, if you had some time. But with that, because we don't know the nature of it, I need to read you something. Okay. Cool? Okay. As I was saying, when we were doing our investigation, we've looked into everyone. By nature, we have to. Um, we just got an awesome with Miss Honda not long ago, a few days ago. Um, I know she's a girlfriend, right? I'm sure she cares about Taylor, as do you, I'm sure. But um, we we found some, some bank records that drew some questions. Um, can you tell me anything about you and and Taylor and any sort of involvement with any businesses? Um, she needed to put like money and whatever and she also wanted to do some of the stuff with my t shirt business and stuff as well with her Taco. And so we added her to my purely southern um Wellsboro account. Is that the T shirt business? Mm -hmm. How does that work with, I mean, what do you, we do, what does that We do, like, festivals or things like that, sort of like the gun shows and things like that that she was going to, where she wanted to sell her um, clips and tactical things and stuff like that. Okay. So, did y'all have, like, a business agreement? Nothing, like, really formal. So, what was the, what was kind of the plan? She was to just kind of come to put her name on y'all's business or something and, and, and yeah, sell t-shirts? Well, we would just use that as just the umbrella for all of the tactical and the t-shirts and everything together. Okay. Now, were you going to do like the ordering for her or was she going to just kind of bring the stuff and do her own thing? We have only worked it all while we Okay. Which day y'all added or opened the account? The account's been open okay. for several years. Um, we added her 
before she went to um, North Carolina with Drake. The only people on the account are Taylor, Zach, and Ashley. Richard asks if Zach was okay with all that, and Ashley says he doesn't really have anything to do with it. She rolls her eyes at both of them as if to say, I'm the only one who does anything around here. She tells them that he's only worked three days in the last six years. He's struggled since Iraq, and Ashley has been carrying the load for the last six years. But she's pretty easy breezy about it. And she manages the finances since she makes the money. They ask if it ever gets frustrating, dealing with his spending, if he ever goes over the top with it. They've been looking at Ashley's bank records, and since there's multiple names on these accounts, they're curious about who does the majority of the managing and spending of the funds. Ashley somehow finds her way into rambling about an office fire that her business had and complains about some parts that they lost. But the white binder on the table might as well be an elephant. It's not going anywhere. Richard asks how the t-shirt business was going, and Ashley says again that they hadn't really worked on it or planned anything. She mentions being busy, having full weekends, lots of travel, you know, stuff like that, she says. She fails to mention the fact that her friend and so-called business partner has been missing for weeks. Richard swerves and says, My concern here is Drake, bringing up Taylor's son. He's clever to catch her off guard conversationally, and putting the adults aside and focusing on the child is one of the simplest ways to control the emotional level of the room. That day, Taylor had apparently been totally normal. But now, Ashley says, I just wasn't sure why she was so irritated with the court date. Ashley puts one of her hands between her crossed thighs, which could be a sign of insecurity in what she's saying. There's certainly some truth to this statement. Taylor was anxious about the court date, but that was because Ashley had been playing cat and mouse with her cash for weeks. She knows these details, but she plays it off as if she doesn't, as if she's unaware about what's been going on. She says she thinks Taylor would go a month without texting anyone and just disappear, but she doesn't know why. She says it must be some sort of chess game with Jeff. So basically what we're trying to do also is trying to, I mean, my concern here is Drake, right? I mean, I'm sure you have a child, right? Um, I can imagine, my kids are old enough to know, obviously, anything, but um, how these children are old enough to know their parents feel if the parent just, I don't know, I mean, how would your daughter feel if, and then not in the unknown, right? right? Um, so one of my bigger concerns, not that I don't care about your feelings and, and with Taylor and all, um, or Cassandra's, but you have this child. So I kind of want to get him some sort of answers, right? Um, and I don't really know what where to go next. Do you have any ideas, anyone that we can go talk to? Anyone, has your mind changed at all? Do you feel any different? Have you thought about any any other ways that this could have went down? Not really. I just, I, I don't know why she's so just irritated with that court date. You know, I don't, I don't. And we're talking about the court date for this whatever Jeff. right and and thinking that he wanted to have her arrested and all that i just i don't know and i just do you think that she would go away intentionally for over a month i think that she would but i don't know why she would i mean i can see her doing that but i don't understand her reasoning to do any of that but I can see her doing that. Because she just is that kind of person. She's going to go where she wants to go and do what she wants to do. And I just, I don't know. I really feel like it's 
some sort of chess game with it, with Jeff. And I just, I mean, I don't understand it, but. Sure. Do you think, out of all the people we've discussed, is there anyone that if they knew where Taylor was, that they would intentionally not tell us? Anyone that would be more apt to do that than others? The only people that I would think that, that you know, would be like that or maybe that girl in Ashley says that Ginger is still a possibility for her, because she'd been someone who was a total secret. Even Ashley hadn't known about her. Richard asks if Taylor ever met any of her friends. Ashley says maybe Audrey, who went on the trip to New Orleans, but that's it. When she's asked how many deposits they made into that t-shirt account business, Ashley sits back, crosses her arms, and says, we probably haven't made any. But then she goes on to say that Taylor, well, correction, we put a check in there three or four times for her. By we, she means that Taylor would give her the checks, and Ashley would go to the bank and deposit them. But there were also times where Taylor owed Ashley money, and it was payback. She has to think about how much, 20000 or something, over the period of weeks. So it's hard for her to keep track of which money was Taylor's. For someone who runs a few businesses, appearing on top of everything like a boss, Ashley is really confused about her finances in the last few months. Richard plays dumb about how checks work, which is a perfect way to try and get her to go into any details, because right now she's being a little coy, and that hasn't been her baseline in conversation so far. They're curious if Ashley has ever had to sign Taylor's name. Ashley says no. Chad jokes about his wife forging his name. Ashley says most checks you don't have to sign to deposit. She also explains that it's possible to do this with no signature and without Taylor because she's depositing it into an account with Taylor's name on it. If she was going up to the teller to cash the check, it would be a different story. But this way she has access to the funds immediately, bypassing that process. Ashley says she doesn't think Taylor ever made deposits or withdrawals herself, but then again, she reminds them, most of this was paying her back for helping her out previous times. Does it sound crazy that Ashley was loaning Taylor money at a rate faster than a full-time job? Yes. And she feels so stupid knowing what she knows now. She probably never would have gotten paid back for any of it, which is confusing. Ashley says she lent Taylor around 20 grand over the span of weeks or months. But the checks that Taylor was giving her to deposit were numerous and large amounts. Hadn't she already been paid back? Well, maybe it was 26 or 28 grand. Ashley seems to have a hard time keeping track of money. She just has so much of it. While she talks about this, she also sticks with her deeper, froggy voice, trailing off at the end of sentences, almost verbally distancing herself from the answer. The purely Southern account over the past year, um, do you know how many deposits you and Zach or Ashley would have made into the account? We probably haven't made any. Um, Taylor put a check in there, or we put a check in there for Taylor, maybe three or four times, um, small checks, um, and then I gave Taylor the cash for them, but it was mostly just she was loaning cash and stuff like that, And but I had given her previously when her, um, she said she had some banking issues or frozen the couch or whatever, um, some cash, and she owed me cash back, so. Probably... For over a period of weeks. Oh, okay. not at one time. No. So much money do you think she owed you back? I don't know. I have to look at it. Because I had been giving her cash and she said, well, you know, when, when she gets her money or whatever, it would, she would, you know, pay him back a bit in the account or whatever. And um, deposit a couple of her checks to that to pay me back. 
maybe three or four total. But we haven't, like I said, we haven't really used the account until Taylor and I started discussing, you know, doing this or whatever. So, Nate, you mentioned that you said that we deplore her? Um, like she would give them to me. And uh, maybe, uh, maybe I just um, don't know much about checks. That's <laughs> um, so she yeah, didn't, wouldn't even get a check. Yeah, oh, it's all like I don't. That's all stuff that I heard used to happen. It's like with VHS and all. So, so she she has a check given to her, made out to her, mm -hmm. and she can give it to you t to deposit. Yes, because we're all in the same account. Okay. I think she has to sign it, though, right? Um, I, I don't know if you have to sign, like, I don't sign mine. Um, you just put them in. Have you ever had to sign her name to a check? Mm -hmm. To deposit it? No. Put them on Eiffel Forge bottom day I actually, most checks, you don't have to. You just put deposit only on there, I think. You can put deposit only, or, like, when I deposit a lot of them, I just put them in. There's I mean, if it's in an account with your name on it, it's just because I think if you were cashing something is when you know what I mean. Because then you'd be receiving the cash. But if it's going into a listed account with you know your name is supposed to be your you know whatever. And she so she was having her accounts were frozen. So yeah, so back a while ago. So y'all would deposit when all this was going down with the check stuff. Or before that? No, before that. So her account was back active? I guess at the time, I don't know. But when y'all deposited the checks in, obviously they, I'm assuming you had access to the funds or y'all had access mm -hmm. to the funds? Do you know where, what bank she was having issues or where these checks were coming from? That, what, what do you mean, which check? Like, were these paychecks that someone wrote to her or were these like where she pulled money out of a bank in form of a, she had one um, cashier check, and then I think the others were like little paychecks that somebody had written to her. Do you know? Do you recall how much the cashier check was for? I think thirty something thousand, thirty three or four. And she or you deposited that? I deposited that. I actually deposited all the checks for her. Into. Unless she deposited more than I know. I mean, just she would just hand it to me and I go. And that was into the simply or purely account. Okay. Did she ever make withdrawals or expenses from that account? That I don't. I don't think so because most of it was paying me back for the money I had already given her. Sure. Now, when you were loaning her money, was it like? Here's five grand, here's ten grand, or was it like here's a couple hundred bucks? No, it's like because she said that her and this started way back in probably February. I don't know. That she was having, you know, issues with her bank or whatever and trying to get money out of whatever she was doing or whatever. So usually I give her like a thousand or fifteen hundred a week or so. To keep and good Lord. Well, so that she can, you know, do what she needs to do and buy her products or her stuff and, you know, keep up her. Pretty good She had another friend, but I don't know if you let them borrow 1500 bucks. Well, I Would mean, you? and that was for a week. But I mean, 
And honestly, it was probably very stupid because knowing what I know now, there's a good chance I would have never gotten, you know, paid back for any of it because it turns out it really wasn't her. But I didn't know her to be anything but honest with me, you know. So. And you loaned her approximately $20,000 over the course of those. Probably 26 or 28, I don't really know. I mean, it wasn't. And she just said, you know, once I get the money, you know, I'll put it in this or whatever. And okay, you know, but I mean, to my knowledge, she was, I mean, she was making it with her private investigator stuff, but she just said, you know, this money is getting tied up. Can you help me out? And Does Zach know all this? Probably not. I mean, we didn't really, we don't like really talk. Richard goes back to the timeline and asks if Ashley can start from the night before Taylor went missing. She asks if she can check her phone really quick. She didn't think that this would be taking so long and everyone is going to be expecting her at work. They assure her it won't take that much longer. In reality, Ashley's phone is evidence now. She won't be getting it back. This was just a ploy to get her into the interrogation room, talking. And it's interesting that Ashley is so concerned about people expecting her at work. They know she's at the police station. Plenty of her friends and co-workers have been interviewed by now. The most important fact remains that the person who is actually missing is Taylor. But for someone who has been calling them once a week for updates, she doesn't seem too concerned to find out what more they have now. Ashley says that the night before, they made plans to spend the day together. She had stopped by a restaurant that Cass and Taylor were having dinner at. It was uneventful. She didn't stick around for long, and then she went home. She isn't sure when they started to hang out on the 8th, but it wouldn't have been too early. Ashley said a few times now that she's not a morning person. She doesn't go to bed until 2 or 3 at least. She had probably been out the night before at the pool hall sticks that she services jukeboxes at. They ask who the owner is. She says, Brandon Beatty. And as for the people who were at the pool hall, nobody really sticks out to her friendship-wise. They were all just regulars. That's about it. She also went to the strip club called Babes before heading home. Zach's just cool with you going out at night like that? Richard asks about her husband. No, he doesn't mind. And when it comes to Zach and Taylor, she's sure there's never been anything romantic between the two of them. She gets a little bit of a disgusted look on her face when she says that she isn't his type. Is there anyone you hung out with that night that you're involved with more than just friends? Ashley pauses. What do you mean? Ashley had mentioned that her marriage is open. She and Zach allow each other to date and have sex with people outside of their relationship. But still, she's saying no, she didn't see anyone that night. Then she adds, Brandon is the only person I see. She says his wife knows. She's cool with it. It's interesting how Ashley has seemed to struggle so much when it comes to Taylor's sexual preferences and dating choices. But when it comes to the details of her own personal life, she doesn't see anything much out of the ordinary. Just simple math. Chad makes a joke about the situation and Ashley lets out a cackle, throwing her head back. Then she puts her hands back between her legs while nodding slowly, that everyone just does their own thing, everyone is totally aware of what's going on, and it's all out on the table in the open. Ashley makes it sound like this is Zach's idea, because even though it's an open relationship, she's only dating one other person. I do it because I don't choose to. Like, I'm actually a pretty shy person. Zach? <laughs> Not so much, she laughs. She can't remember if she hooked up with Brandon that night. Is he the one I saw you with that one day? Richard asks. No, that was my cousin, Kyle Britt, she says. He moved here for school from Gainesville, and he's been staying with a friend right now. She isn't sure where, but he's never met Taylor. The last day Taylor was seen doesn't stick out much to Ashley, even after all this time. Ashley becomes extremely soft-spoken, and half of what she's saying is mostly just questions out loud to herself. She must have slept in, went to Taylor's, there was Ashley's office, the bank, Taylor's house again, viewing the house for the case Taylor was working, out to the farm in Milton, back to Ashley's, and then she vanished from her driveway. 
She isn't sure about the house involved in the case. She couldn't point it out. She just knows the area because they stopped at a gas station to get a drink close by. That day, she was driving Zach's truck because her collector had her car. That's the person who goes around and collects the money from the machines for her. Richard asks how much that kind of thing pulls in anyway. She says the pool tables are usually three or four hundred a week, each. And the jukeboxes? Six or seven hundred a piece. A week. Bars will usually do a split with providers so they don't have to worry about servicing or music updates. But that's incredibly impressive, to maintain thousands of dollars a month for them. Almost unheard of. And as she loves to, Ashley rambles about herself, the dying business of jukeboxes, a lot of details that don't matter. Sorry, I got off track, Chad laughs. Ashley readjusts in her seat towards Richard and jokes, I'm gonna get killed. She's late for work. She has more important things to do than sit here and figure out where her friend is. Her phone has already told them where she was that day. Richard just wants to see how well her memory and her story match up. Getting back to the Tom Thumb gas station, both hands are between her legs and tucked close to her body. She could be cold since interrogation rooms are maintained to be an uncomfortable atmosphere with no distractions, or she could be feeling really vulnerable and insecure talking about these details, which makes sense. She's unable to give solid answers about most things, and Ashley's reasoning for this is because that day didn't mean anything to her at all at that point. She grits her bubblegum between her teeth. It was just another day, she says. Although it's hard to believe that the last person to see Taylor wouldn't be going through that morning over and over, scouring any glance or sentence or change in mood as evidence for why she disappeared. She didn't have any difficulties remembering every minute detail about other events that happened months earlier, events that weren't as significant as one of your closest friends going missing. What were y'all driving that day? That's accent, Yeah. 
Richard is curious about the farm. He asks when the decision was made to go there, but Ashley doesn't remember. Taylor just wanted to ride around. They were out there maybe 30 minutes. Ashley is giving a lot of mm-hmms and nodding with her eyes closed when she confirms something he asks. Her lips stay mostly pursed, especially when she's asked if anyone lives out at the farm. The tension she's feeling in her body is palpable to both officers, who have found her bubbly and conversational up until this point. Nothing was strange about that day. Nothing was weird about her mood. She says her attitude was fine when they parted ways, even though Ashley previously told them that she went into the house and when she came out, Taylor was gone. Seems a little abrupt for someone in a totally normal mood. So you y'all went to Milton Farm. When was the decision made your call to go out there? I don't know. He was just talking and she just, she just wanted to ride around. What was her attitude like? She just bored him. I mean, she was just kind of, I mean, she'd talk about, you know, the court case and stuff and Jeff a little bit. And like I said, she was drinking beer since nine or so that morning, whatever, whenever I went to her. And I mean, she wasn't like depressed or angry or anything like that. I mean, she was. You know, irritated when she would talk about that, but not like just crabby and, yeah. you know. And that's why when she told, told me, you know, that she wants to get a beer, that I didn't really think much of it at all. Sure. <laughs> she all went up to the Milton farm. Mm-hmm. Do you recall how you got out there or which? And how does that now, that's your family's farm, or is Zach's family? Mine. How does that work? Do you all just kind of go freely when you want, or do you have to, like, tell someone you're coming? No, I can just go out there. Does anyone live out there? Mm-hmm. Okay. And how long were you all out there, roughly? Mm-hmm. I don't know. 30 minutes, And this is, you said off of Highway 87? Mm-hmm. Um, so you all went out there 87, mm-hmm. 90, and hit the farm? Mm-hmm. Out there for a couple hours. Do you recall anything? Her attitude or what it was like out there? I mean, she was just the same. I mean, she just she wasn't in a bad mood. I mean, she wasn't the happiest I've ever seen her, but she wasn't crabby or you know out of sorts or sad or you know. kind of. Was there any other family out before him? We all went out there. What did y'all do? We just walked around and looked at the animals and she hopped on one of the horses there back for a minute and around. Well, she was telling me about her, I guess, Nancy in Tallahassee has animals and they just had been there not much longer before that. So she seemed relatively normal outside of being a little frustrated over the court thing. Was she like Highly intoxicated in any form? Oh, no. She probably only had two beers throughout the whole time I was with her. But, I mean, I just thought it was odd that she was drinking. I mean, that's not what I started my day, but, you know. Sure. Well, I mean, <laughs> see, sir, um, so y'all left the farm in Milton and went where? Back to my house. Okay. And can you kind of walk me through that drive? Anything that stood out to you that you can remember? Do you recall, I know this, I know it's been a month, but do you recall, like, 
which roads you may have taken back. Maybe James Highway or Fairfields or how I would usually go over the interstate to Fairfields or. Okay. Um, and you go back. Good. Oh, go um, so you get back to the house, then what? Then I went inside, and then that's when she left. Okay. As a mother yourself, what kind of person does it take to just leave a child like that? I wouldn't leave mine, she says. She doesn't think Taylor is the type who would do that, although she adds that Taylor told her she never wanted children. Wherever Ashley has the opportunity to pile character attacks against her friend while trying to appear non-accusatory, she dives right in. Chad brings up the fact that they've been going through the phone records and says he has a question about her calling the police station and 911. Oh, I remember that! Ashley gets excited, readjusts in her seat, and starts beaming. This is a question she can answer. There had been a prior fight at the strip club Babes, and she was calling the station to check if the people in the fight had a warrant because of it. It takes her a minute to get into the details, but the person she was actually checking for was Brandon. She says he has too much going for him to have something like that on his record, and basically everyone just gets into fights up there all the time. Did you and Brandon witness a wreck that morning? Oh yeah, now I remember. The days all blend together. Yes, a car hit the side rail. Her and Brandon were alone, driving in their separate cars on the way to a marina where his boat is. All right, well, do you know how cell phone towers work and how cell phones communicate with towers? Chad asks her. Ashley playfully frowns and shakes her head no. He explains how phones are constantly communicating, or pinging, with towers. Based off the ping location, you can see the location of the phone, and more specifically, what sector of the tower the phone is communicating with. For example, he pulls out a map of her phone pings in the morning. Here you are, using your phone in this sector, somewhere in this area, most likely your house. Right, she agrees. But before they get into more of Ashley's movements that day, they need to clear up who is who. The phone Brandon is using is in Ashley's name. Does Zach know that you got him a phone that's in your name? No, she says. They assure her that nothing in here will leave the room. Ashley plasters a laughing face on for a split second, but she's not laughing. She's anxiously surprised at how much the police know. Now that they can cross out any possibility of phone numbers that aren't Ashley, they confront her with the discrepancies that need clarification. First, she wasn't at the Milton farm when she says she was. She went that evening, not that morning. Zach and Ashley had dinner out that way. She remembers now. They ask how often she talks to her cousin Kyle. They wondered previously if anyone had lived at the Milton farm and she said no. But it turns out her aunt owns another farm property, where Kyle is living. Ashley doesn't go out there a whole lot. When they ask where that farm is, she mentions it's off a highway. The last time she was there was when her aunt came into town and they did brunch. But when we started plotting all the phone calls that you and Taylor were making that day, there were some discrepancies in what you had told us. Okay. Okay. We know that you didn't go to Milton when you said you went to Milton. We did go to Milton. Not when you said you went there. Oh, well, I went. You went that evening. Oh, okay. Around 7, 30, 8 o'clock, maybe you went to dinner out there or something? We did go to dinner out there. Who all went to dinner out there with you? Me and Zach. You and Zach, okay. Uh, how often do you talk to this Kyle Brick guy? Probably a couple times a day. When I say talk, text, or voice. Right. Um, do you remember talking to him that day on the 8th? You know what y'all would have spoke about? Probably school or something. Do you know if he was at home that day? I don't 
often. She well, I don't know. I don't I don't know. I think he was helping help. Yeah. Where does she stay? Now, the, who is Kyle's parents? My, my aunt and uncle. What's their names? Um, Karen Britt. Karen Britt? Mm-hmm. Okay. And what's his name? Carl. Karen Carl. Okay. Do they have uh, any property here in, in Florida? Yeah. Or, I'm sorry, I should say Florida, because Jacksonville is Florida. Uh, any property here in Escambia County? Yeah. Okay, where's that at? That is off of Beulah Road, Or, no, off of G97. Now, do you, um, travel out there a lot to their property? Not a whole lot. Do you travel more to their property or more to your aunt's property in Milton? Okay. When was the last time you think you went out to the uh, property of Beulah? Mm-hmm. Or 297, whatever you call it. Um, my aunt was here and I thought I'd say hi to them. Was she visiting? Mm-hmm. Dinner or just out to say hello? We did brunch. Oh, okay. See you out there. Yeah. Good morning. Chad switches gears again, grabs something out of the binder and says, I want to talk to you about this for a minute. Is this that check you were talking about? Do you know whose signature that is? Ashley stares. Hmm. It says Taylor's name, but it doesn't really look like her signature. When they ask if she could have done that, she says probably not. Probably is different than never, which is what she told them in her first interview. They assure her that if they had some sort of agreement where she could sign for her, it's fine. They're just curious. I mean, she just, I mean, we were. She shrugs and doesn't continue. He compares Ashley's signature and the fake Taylor signature, and the writing looks the same. But she says she didn't sign them. She just deposited them and then spent the money how she wanted, because it was money owed to her. Well, I want to go back to the, the cow stuff here for a minute. Is this that check you were talking about earlier? Mm-hmm. Do you know whose signature that is? Mm, it says Taylor's name, but it doesn't really look like her signature. Would you have maybe wrote her name on there by chance? Probably not. And look, if, if y'all are on the account together, and you have no. permission to... Oh, I... Oh, that's what we're getting at, is did you have permission to? Oh, I didn't... I mean, she told me to deposit all the checks that I deposited. There should be several others. There, there are. Well. There's this one, right? You want to put that one in there? Is that clearly Taylor's signature? Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, it looks like it. it. Her signature is usually more bubbly. But it's different. Obviously, those two signatures are different. Oh, sure. But you would agree more... with that, too, right? Oh, yeah. How about this one? Is this one you would have put in there, you think? Mm-hmm, probably. And what about that signature? This is what her signature is. Like. It's a bubbly. Well, these two seems more similar than this one to those, right? Uh, that, that's why I was asking earlier if, if she's ever, if you've ever signed her name to something. Um, personally, I don't care if she's telling you can, that's fine. I don't know, but I, I mean, feelings like, with the bank. she just, I mean, we are. Well, this is, is this your signature? Mm-hmm. To me, that looks more to that kind of writing. But, I, I mean, I'm not a handwriting expert. I've never claimed to be a handwriting expert. Uh, but all these signatures are yours, correct? Right. Okay. Again, it's not an issue with me. I just needed to. If you wrote that, that's fine. I just needed to know if you wrote it. I didn't, but I, don't really, I mean, it doesn't look like her signature to me either. Did Zach have written her name on there? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Use that account ever. Okay. So I mean, I know that I deposited this. Okay. 
happened to this money after you deposited it? Um, a lot of it I used because it was payment for the money that I had been given her. Did, I mean, she knew that you were going to do that with that shit? Oh, yeah. And, and that's fine. It's that's a joint account. We, that's why we did the account. He pulls out more paperwork. We have the ability to plot out your day with phone calls. Chad shows her the electronic trail of September 8th. The activity starts around 9.05 a.m., and there are continuous pings in the area where her house is on the same tower. Then it shows movement around 9.51 a.m., more movement at 10.13. Ashley doesn't know where they would have been going. Then her phone isn't captured by any towers from 10.30 a.m. until 12.10 p.m. The officer explains that they know she's at the farm during that time. Not the Milton farm, but the other farm, over 30 minutes away in the opposite direction, where Kyle was staying. The farm that Ashley has had so much trouble remembering the address of? Turns out it's on Britt Road, their family name. She just says a quick right, but internally, she's losing it. She's been keeping this information from them on purpose. From 12.10 p.m. onward, she's still at the farm. Her phone is on, it's making calls and interacting with nearby towers. She can't remember who she spoke to, she's too busy and gets too many phone calls. According to the phone record, she doesn't leave the Britt Road farm until 1.44 p.m. Of course, the officers want to know why she hasn't been honest. We, uh, picked some stuff up that Taylor had there, a lockbox. She asked me not to tell anyone. She had texted Kyle that morning asking if he was at the farm. She had contacted other family members asking if anyone would be around. The temperature of the room continues to rise as they press her on what her and Taylor did after they left the farm. Ashley is hesitant now. She knows they already know, but she's going to continue to play dumb as long as possible. She says a lot of maybes and I think so's. She doesn't want to commit to anything that can be confronted. It just wasn't a significant day for us, she says again. I beg to differ, Chad challenges her. Playtime is over. And this, it all starts at 9.05, okay? So 9.05, you're probably at home. Eight fifteen, you're probably at home. 9.05, 9.13... And it's the same tower, just, well, it's a different tower because it's on the south side of your house. But what it does is there's three towers, and your phone will communicate with the one that's got the best signal. Right. And that's how it knows. That's how you always know stuff. It looks like you're moving here. This may have been, I don't know where you may have been going, but it was 9.51. you know about what time y'all went over to your office after you picked her up? 10.13. You know y'all may have been going... What's that, you know what's about what time you picked her up? Let me ask you that. That may be easier. Probably. I thought it was about 10.30, but I could be wrong. Okay. Then, for some reason, it didn't capture any more towers from 10.30 to 12.10. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, at 12.10, you are in here. Mm-hmm. We know that your aunt and uncle and Kyle own the farm there on Britt Road. Right. And it's showing that you're probably near that farm, or if not, and you're there when this is the time when you're telling us that you're probably in Milton or headed towards Milton. Because it's uh, 12 10 in the afternoon. We were still on the Beulah side then. Yeah, but if you're at that Tom Thumb, it's going to be covering down here. Not up here. The, okay. Tom, the Tom Thumb was not covered by this tower. 12 10, 12 22, you're still covering the farms. 12 47, 13 01. Or, sorry, 1311, which is 111. You're calling. Who have been calling? Mm, there's no telling. Like, we, I, I get so many calls each day. You're out here for quite a while. 
and it, you, you leave around at least at 1344, your phone's not communicating with the part of the tower that covers the river. What were y'all doing out there at this farm? You know y'all were there. We picked up some um, stuff that Taylor had there that we what was there? She had stored um, some kind of lockbox that she had. Why would you not tell us that originally? Because she asked me not to tell anyone ever. That's not going to I gotcha. Okay. Did you text Kyle that day asking me if he was at home? Mm, that I don't know. Probably not. I mean, he wouldn't, he wouldn't care if I was there. Would you have contacted anyone and asked if anyone else was going to be out there? When did Taylor, you and Taylor, take this thing for a lot of bucks out there? Um, two weeks before. Okay. And who has access to that lot box? She does. What was in it? That, I don't know. So y'all left there, where did y'all go? Um, probably. Absolutely. We're trying to find closure. Do you go back out to this farm after y'all leave? To set her box up? Well, I'm asking you, do you go back out to the farm after y'all leave? Mm, I don't think so. You don't think so? I mean, that day was not that eventful for us. Beg mm-hmm. to differ. I beg to differ with you there. Was Mr. Beattie with y'all when y'all went out there? Mm-hmm. He wasn't with y'all? Okay. He's not going to have any towers showing out there. Mm-hmm. Nobody else. Zach wasn't with you? Mm-hmm. Did you call and have anyone come meet you out there or text come meet you out there? No. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you leave. Looks like maybe you go back to your house. I don't know where y'all go. This is at the uh, 157. Right. When you leave there, that's why it's important. When you all leave there, where do y'all go? I don't really know. I mean, it was, it, like I said, it wasn't like we were just really kind of riding around. Ashley had been driving around for a while, and then her phone is right back at the Brit Road Farm around 2.45 p.m. They didn't just go pick something up and ride horses for 30 minutes. Several hours of her day was spent there. Ashley says maybe she went back to feed horses. She doesn't know. Richard picks up a little good cop energy by saying that they don't think Ashley is a bad person. I mean, she went to one of the most exciting cities in the country and willingly spent the whole time in the hospital taking care of her friend. Obviously, she wants the best for people. She's told them about all this volunteering, lending money, helping homeless people live at her office. Richard mounts the pressure onto her. He reminds her of Taylor's son, Drake. But what they don't know is that Ashley is more cold-blooded and callous than they assume. She still says the last time she saw Taylor was at her place before she took off. Ashley attended a wedding the next day with Zach, but her phone records show that she left early. She's leaning on the desk with her elbow, staring at the black and white maps of towers and pings. While they're asking her which vehicle she used to go to the wedding, her hand moves to her throat and then the back of her neck, which she occasionally rubs back and forth. She's feeling vulnerable and she's self-soothing. They start asking about the stuff that Taylor had left in her vehicle, and she says she's given everything that she left behind to Cassandra. Richard asks if maybe their vehicles are messy. He's giving her an out before they catch her once again, but she's not taking the bait. It wasn't just Ashley's day they mapped out with cell phone activity. They also have Taylor's day, too. 
And after her disappearance, her phone continued to communicate with the same towers that Ashley's did. The officer wants to know, why does she have Taylor's phone? She's out of good answers and completely flustered. They let her know that everything is being followed up on. Kyle is being interviewed right now. The officer says, something happened to her and she's probably at that farm. But Ashley switches her eye contact to Richard and ignores him. And more importantly, they're executing a search warrant for the Brit Road farm. That's fine, but she's not going to be there, Ashley says. She sticks to her story without budging. They use one final tactic, reminding her that she's the only person who can properly tell her version of events. Chad shuffles his chair close to her, sits in her physical space. She moves back, sitting on her hands. Tell us what happened, he pleads. But Ashley plays victim and says she better get an attorney. She knows she can't lie her way out of this anymore. Well, we did the same thing for Taylor's phone. Mm-hmm. Okay. This is the day of her, her disappearance. Right. She's probably she's either at your house or at right. probably at her house at nine eleven. Right. Because uh Cassandra said she didn't leave until closer to ten o'clock, she thought. Okay. So she had two phone calls at around nine eleven. Nine thirteen, she's still at the same house, probably nine forty eight. She's at the same area, 1010, same same tower, same sector of the tower. Right. Okay. Could be your house or her house. Right. Probably her house. All right. So the next morning, her phone, this is the day after she was disappeared. Right. Okay. At 2017, mm-hmm. that's uh, 817, the first phone call, her phone is communicating with a tower that covers your house. Okay. Not her house, your house. Same tower. Right. Same place. 2820, all these are incoming calls. They're not outgoing calls. Right. Uh, same tower covering your house. Right. 911, her phone's obviously moving because it's over here off a nine mile in the interstate somewhere. Mm-hmm. Somewhere in that area. Still moving. Yeah, it's 753. Mm-hmm. 1753. So, I'm just it arrives back at your house later on. Right. Okay. Your phone and her phone is communicating off the same tower, mm-hmm. eight minutes apart. Why do you have her phone, or why is she with you? She wasn't with me. I was unaware that I had her phone. How did you get her phone? I don't know that I have her phone. I mean, it could have been the, the stuff that she had in the vehicle, but... Here's the problem with that. You say you got a text message from her the evening of the 8th saying, hey, I'm okay. I just got to get away and get my head clear. Mm-hmm. That's not possible. So phone was well, you have her phone. I don't have her phone. Well, at that point, at that time, a text came from her phone to your phone. According to you, saying... Well, I mean, that's what popped up on my phone. What? I mean, I had a message pop up on my phone. How did her phone end up back in your truck? I don't know. I mean, that's what I mean. I don't know that it ever left. I don't, I mean, I just got her stuff and took it to pass. Supposedly she left with her phone because she sent you a text message. That's what you're saying. She had two phones. But the phone that she sent you a text message on is the same phone with that tower being sitting on. It may be, but that I have no idea. Where is Taylor at? I have no idea. You need to tell us where she's at. I don't know where she's at. I don't have any clue. Look, if you were put in a situation where someone pushed you to do something for whatever reason, 
maybe against your will, perhaps in self-defense. If something happened and you're scared, don't be scared. Okay, if something happened, like I said, you're not a bad person. You're, you're not a career criminal. This is a person who's traveled across states to take care of a friend. If something happened, tell us. I don't know where she is. We, we have a detective talking to Kyle right now. We know you have text Kyle and ask her if he was at that farm on the 8th. Multiple we times. may have. I mean, I don't. Then you withhold that information from us. The person who is trying to help a friend out, who cares for their friends, doesn't lie to the police when they are looking for them. Okay. I didn't think that, that was... Tell me what you did to her. I didn't do anything to her. Tell me what Zach did. Somebody harmed her, and she's probably out of that farm. Zach it was never even around her. Kyle. Kyle's never been around her. Brandon. He's never been around her. Then that leaves you. So you're the only I one didn't... that was with her on this day at this farm that you did not disclose to us. I didn't do anything to you her. Tell you this, if she's at that farm, we're going to find her because we're executing a search warrant out there right now. That's fine, but she's not going to be there. Then where is she at? I don't know where she where's is. Where's her body at? I don't know where she is. She's dead, though. We I know don't that. believe that. Ashley, the thing is, is, we know that you had knowledge that phone was there because of a text was sent to your phone from that phone. And it was it was in your possession. It was at the same location. So either either Taylor was sitting in your bedroom with you, texting you, and you somehow didn't know, and then stayed in your car with you and communicated with other individuals the entire next day, all the way out of the wedding, when this wedding was hiding in your car, there's just there's no way humanly possible that you didn't have knowledge of the phone. The, the thing is I think that you're concerned, I think that you're scared. There's no need to be. Right? If something happened, we are going to figure out. Would you rather us figure out what happened with you saying, I don't know, I don't know, and then catching you with these statements that are inconsistent? Would you rather that, or would you rather come forward and say, look, I, an accident happened, or this asshole over here, this guy pushed this on me. Don't cross your legs for a second. Don't cross your legs for a second. Don't let us tell your story, because this is going to tell us what happened. Don't let us tell something that may not be true. Tell us what happened. I think at this point I need an attorney because it seems to me that y'all think that I did something to her. Okay. I respect that. <laughs> Sit tight and go from there, okay? After her request for a lawyer, the police are no longer free to question Ashley. They also have nothing but circumstantial evidence, so they can't hold her. Richard comes back in before she leaves. All right, we're taking your phones, your vehicles. We've searched your house, and we're searching the farm. Here's your keys. You're free to leave. Ashley grabs the keys and darts out of the room behind him. They knew it was only a matter of time until they had the evidence they needed. And sure enough, just 10 minutes after she walked out of the police station, cadaver dogs located the remains of Taylor Wright along a fence line on the Britt Road farm. She was nothing more than bones now. And where her neck would have been was the necklace she wore every day, a bullet on a chain. Ashley would be brought right back to the station and charged with murder in the first degree. She was held at the county jail on a $1 million bond, which she continually fought. Ashley had lived in this area her whole life. All her ties were to Pensacola. She wasn't a flight risk with a criminal history. 
By February, her attorneys successfully argued it down to 400000 and she was released on the conditions that she'd stay at her mother's home with GPS monitoring. Unsurprisingly, Ashley would find herself in trouble soon again when the state filed a motion to revoke her bond, based off of grounds that a neighbor's reporting said she'd been staying at Zach's. The defense argued that this wasn't necessarily a violation of terms. Out of the 42 days, she'd spent only eight nights at her husband's residence. From the perspective of the community corrections officers overseeing her bond requirements, technically, a residence was where someone lives, and she was still at her mother's for the majority of the time. Judge Jan Shackelford told the court that she was flabbergasted that nobody would have just contacted her for further instruction. She clarified that the bail terms require Ashley to spend every single night at her mother's home. The judge didn't specify any time, but she did note that she can't be at Zach's residence between 8 p.m. and 9 a.m. There was nothing keeping him from visiting her mother's home whenever he wanted, though. And this wouldn't be the last time that Ashley would find herself in a courtroom before standing trial for murder. But she would have all the regular comforts of home while she waited. Police immediately called Zach to let him know that his wife was being charged with murder and he needed to come down for some questioning. All he could do was let out a shocked, what? And after some initial questioning, Zach would also lawyer up for his own protection. He had no problem whatsoever helping the police. Zach was a lover of law enforcement. And he's quite friendly on a personal level with one or two of the detectives questioning him. These people are his professional community. So it was strange for him to be sitting on the other side of the table on October 26th, just a week after his wife's arrest. Zach was the whole start of this domino effect, the one who had met Taylor Wright and introduced her to Ashley, although they didn't have a friendship. His reasoning for this is because he suspected that Taylor had a drug issue from the very beginning. He leans forward in his chair, resting his sunglasses in the middle of his forehead, as he explains why he was never in the mix. She was just spending too much time in the bathroom. Once when she was dating his friend Jessica, she just disappeared for hours. He didn't really trust her. So the first thing he thought when Ashley said she took off was, yep, I knew it. That girl was shady from the start. He didn't even know she was actually missing until the first time police came by the house. Even then, all he knew was that Taylor had left a bunch of stuff in one of Ashley's work trucks. She'd been a nice enough friend to help her move and ended up with all this drama to deal with. Next comes his alibi for that day. The police already know the times and locations, of course. They're just corroborating his story details with the evidence they have. Truthfully for Zach, it wasn't that significant. He pulled his bank statements before the interview to jog his memory because he always uses his debit card and never cash. He spent time at a friend's place in the morning. He drove his white Jeep because Ashley was using his truck to help Taylor move. After that, he went to lunch alone. Ashley couldn't join him because she was busy with work stuff. He joined a friend for dinner that evening and his phone pings in the area of the restaurant. Again, Ashley was busy. And the final charge might be on camera somewhere as well, a late night trip to Popeye's that evening. Zach was alone all day. His wife spends a lot of her free time at Sticks with her friends. So you kind of know the date that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Have you had a chance to go back and pinpoint where you were on, on the, the 8th. 8th of September? It's very, I can't remember shit, but I'm trying to do the very best I can so I can tell y'all the best I can. Um, I know I ate at lunch at the seafood. Um, I went to the bank yesterday to pull my statement. I know I ate lunch at the seafood place at Nine Mile in Pine Forest. I ate there. And I remember eating by myself, and I remember Ash not being able to make it because she was tied up with work. So I ate by myself. Um, I don't know if it was before or after that, I went by a friend's house, Jennifer Rollins. Um, Back up, just say, how, how did you end up paying? Did you pay for cash or did you use I'll, I'll card? I always my debit card. That's generally what I use is that one. That's the only thing I got is that debit card. So you had to use your debit card there? Yeah. Okay. Now, what were you doing up in that area? 
I mean, I, I eat there all the time. I mean, I, I'm from up that way, so I know people everywhere up that way. Um, but I, I did go to by Jennifer's house, I think, before before that. Now, Jennifer Jennifer Rowan, yeah. And you think that was before lunch? I think so, yeah. Do Is that have, just a friend of yours? Yeah. Do you have a phone number for her or anything? Okay. Um, how long do you think that you were with Jennifer? Maybe an hour. I, I don't remember. Maybe, maybe an hour. I was there maybe an hour, and I think that's when I, I went to eat. And um, Before or after? I don't remember if I went. I'm, I'm thinking I went to eat after. I'm not positive. I'm not 100%. So, but I, I went to the bank yesterday, pulled my statement um, to, to try to, to figure out the best I could. Did you bring them in? No, I forgot them. Okay. You have them, though? Yeah. You willing to hand those over? Absolutely. Okay. No problem. All right. So, were you trying to make arrangements with Ashley to meet up for lunch Yeah, I just always, you know, if she, I, yeah, I mean, I love, you know, would have loved it, and she just said she was tied up with work. Okay. All right. And do you remember what you did after eating lunch? I guess I went home. Um, I, I have a charge on there for Popeye's that night. So I, I remember at some point going to Popeye's Chicken mm -hmm. on Cervantes, and I remember I had the doors off my Jeep, and it was a little chilly. Um... And I remember having to wait on my food for a little bit. So um, I went to Popeye's and I was by myself. Gosh, wasn't home, so. Do you know where she was? A lot of times she would uh, hang out at the pool hall up there at Sticks or whatever with her girlfriends or whatever. So maybe there, I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't remember. Okay. Zach doesn't know anything about their finances. He's unemployed and for the most part, when he does get jobs here and there, he just gives the money to Ashley. He's also won a lawsuit that awarded him $60,000. He received two payments, 50 in March and 10 in July, which he also gave to Ashley. She manages their shared bank account, and he doesn't know a lick of what goes on in there. He's never even logged in. Granted, he isn't a big spender. If there was something of significant price, maybe a couple hundred bucks or something, he'd run it by Ashley first. But for all his other purchases, gas, lunches, dinners, whatever else, he just swipes his card assuming there's money. And there always is. He had no idea whatsoever that they were having any kind of financial problems. He doesn't live too large, so he figured he'd been surviving off of the settlement money this whole time. He didn't even realize that money was gone until after her arrest, when he saw that their bank accounts were empty. But it wasn't as if they were living like paupers. Ashley was always out, their tanks were always full of gas, they took trips to go see football games out of town, hotel stays, casino visits, weekends away, hunting trips, bar tabs almost every night. Even with the settlement, where was all that money coming from? And what about before the settlement? Were they just living off of her income alone? Zach says he figures Ashley makes about 45000 a year, and maybe the business is just doing really well on top of that. Not only did he leave all the finances to Ashley, he left all the math to her as well, but nothing about this was adding up. It's clear that when it comes to the way his wife was living her life, and more importantly how she was spending her time and money, he knows very little of the truth. And he's never even logged into his own bank account, ever. So if something was going on with their money, somehow as her husband, he would be the last to know. Understandably, the police are skeptical about his ignorance. Do you know anything about this money that Taylor had given you all? No, absolutely not. She's never given me anything. Absolutely. But I mean, I've, I've read in the online or whatever what, what you're talking about. No, I've, I've never got anything like from that. No. Okay. Do you do you know anything about your finances? No, to be honest, I give her when like when I work a case or like and I, I got a uh, 
uh, settlement for my attorney, I hand it straight to Ash. She takes care of everything. How much was that check for? Uh, one check was almost 50 and the other check was almost 10, so almost approximately 60. I handed it straight to her. Uh, you didn't ever, you don't want... I've never even logged in. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Never, never. looked on the account or, or gone to an ATM and pulled up account balance or anything? No, I, the only nature? time I've ever went to, I went to an ATM, like if my if I got a new ATM card because I've, I've had some that went bad or whatever, and I... No, never. I don't. I don't mess with it whatsoever. She always did. And those checks that you said that were yours that you signed over. When was that? One was in March, and the other one was in July. Uh, the big one first, or yeah, the small big one? one first, and then the small one. Okay. Do you know anything about your bills as far as how much you owe on credit cards or anything she like that? She pays everything. She takes care of it all. Every single bit of it. Is there any indication that you guys are in financial trouble? No, I no, I thought I'm living off my uh, settlement I just got. And plus, she works every day. I mean, I haven't worked in a few months doing the PI stuff, but I no, I, I didn't know you had any financial problems at all. No, I mean, I just got sixty thousand dollars. I don't. Have you checked to see if that money's still there? From what I understand, everything's gone. Where do you think it went? I don't know. When, when did you? come to find out that your money or the money that was in your account or y'all's account was um, missing? I guess after all, all this investigation started and, and the room were, I don't know if, I don't know who said that, hey, all the accounts are dry and I hear she's got like 13 accounts. I didn't know that, you know, but I mean, she runs, she runs her business. So I don't know. I, I don't, I don't, I don't have any clue about the, our bank account. Other, I, She pays everything, every single bit of it. Do you know how much money she makes? I heard her mother say one time that her mother said $45,000. Her mother told my buddy Derwood, Derwood told me that she made 45000 I mean, I thought she, thought she did well. We've never really talked about it, you know. I just never, I just thought she did well with that business. They've had that business forever, and, you know, that's it. I well, feel stupid now not knowing, you know. Well, think, think about this in, in layman's terms of reality. I mean... The things you were able to do and the things that you have, and you think $45,000 would cover that? I'm just assuming that she did very well with the business because, I mean, she was she ran that business, you know. It used to be your dad's business. She ran the business, and, you know, I knew I got my money from the, my uh, settlement, so I didn't think we had any, any problems whatsoever. Well, what about prior to the settlement, financial-wise, prior to uh, March and then... Whenever you I just thought we were living off the money she made. Zach had been to the Brit Road farm before, the last time being a couple months ago to trade his four-wheeler for a side-by-side. He isn't sure of the timeline, but he thinks that it's before all of this happened. They ask about a few people in Ashley's life, asking who she hangs out with at the pool hall. Zach knows Audrey, Jessica, and Brandon, who she hooks up with occasionally. Brandon had actually called him pretty soon after Ashley's arrest, knowing that the details of their little tryst was going to make headlines. He told him about the motorcycle, about all the financial help with sticks, etc. He left out a few things, though. In his defense, Ashley helped Brandon so much, it's easier to list what she didn't do than what she did. Well, Brandon likes to talk. Did he say anything else to you? But Zach doesn't remember. He was so upset, and he's still in shock. He just doesn't believe that Ashley, his wife who was never home and always at sticks, was serious with anyone outside of their marriage. 
Zach sits in the chair with a relaxed and open posture as he describes how helpless he felt when he found out Ashley was arrested. They ask him how he felt about Taylor missing, and he circles back to the suspected drug use, saying that he heard Cassandra had confirmed it to Ashley recently. He obviously doesn't know anything about Honesty Night or the details of it. Maybe Ashley told him a different version. Zach is so anti-drug, it wouldn't matter. The second he hears that someone might be doing something with substances, he's out of there and he wants nothing to do with it. He was so upset when he found out it was true that he forbid Ashley from bringing Taylor to their home ever. And good old Ash, she hates confrontation. She'll never argue with anybody, Zach says. And that very may well be true. It would appear that Ashley prefers to just shoot people in the back of the head. Okay, now this Brandon guy, I mean, let's, let's be honest here. They had a relationship. I didn't know they had a relationship. I thought they were just hooking up every now and then. I didn't know they had a relationship. He, uh, I talked to him before. He, he told me that she was lying to him. She was lying to me, and I thought they were done. And then he called me when I was in D.C. and said that, you know, was telling me, hey, she got arrested and that they were, um, that they, I guess they were still talking or whatever, and I had no idea. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I didn't care if she you know, just was hooking up with somebody, but I mean, I, I wouldn't want her to be in a relationship with nobody, you know. Did he tell you anything about anything that she had bought him? Yep. What did he tell you? He said you? that she bought him a motorcycle. Okay. And you had no idea about None. any of that? Zero. Okay. Did he tell you anything else that she bought him? No, he said that she, no, but he, he just, he said that she had bought him a motorcycle and was, and, and bought some of them other girls a couple of things or whatever. Um, and that was it. The girls from the bar? Yeah, and I'm assuming they make her friends or whatever. That, that's all, that's all I remember. Okay. Do you know what those items were that, for the girls? He said a laptop, a laptop, has that, I don't remember. Did he say anything else about it? I mean, did he, because... Brandon kind of likes to talk. He just kind of says whatever. I don't know, y'all. I was I was so stressed out and upset. Like I, I was so shocked when he told me that she had bought, and I didn't know whether to believe it or not. You know, I, and I still don't. It's hard for me to believe and swallow that she would buy him something like that. You know, and it, I mean, it, it hurts me. You know, I, I, um, I, I don't remember him saying anything else. Not that I remember. Have you talked to him any since then? I don't think so. Have you heard from any of her friends? No, no, no. He did. Say, he said he he said he would was going to come to talk to the sheriff's office. Maybe he called me twice. I don't remember. It was either once or twice. I, I don't remember. I was I was very, very upset. So I, I really don't. It was either once or twice. And he said the sheriff's office wanted to talk to him, and that he had hired so I don't know some attorney. And I'm like, all right, you know. When was that? Um. I guess the evening or afternoon that she got arrested. Now, how did you find out that she got arrested? I think her mom called me. Okay. Do you remember what time of day that was? It was during the day because I, I think I was, it was during the day. And she said she had come home and then they come back over there and, and picked her up. Did you know that she was going up to PPD? Yeah, she said she was going to get her phone back. Okay. Um, I mean, when you find out all this happens, what'd you say? I mean, I was just in shock. I mean, I didn't know what to do. I was in shock. I didn't know. I felt helpless, and, and I didn't know what. I was just, man. I couldn't. I couldn't eat. I couldn't. I was just. I mean, it's my wife. You know, I, I love her very much. I, I didn't. 
I, I didn't know what to do. I felt helpless. Did you ever think about maybe what happened to Taylor while she was missing? I honestly just figured, I, I, I was just thinking, I, I knew, I, I knew, I knew that she had that drug problem. I really thought, you know, and I remember her. Did you assume that? Or you knew I, that? Her girlfriend told Ash that she did. Now that I remember her. That's Cassandra girl? Yes. So I was like, damn, I knew it. I'm never wrong judging people, ever. But Cassandra told Ash that, and I, I remember thinking, thinking to myself, I knew it. So I think Taylor was strange. I mean, she would just disappear. You know, she disappeared from Jess's house that night, and I figured she was off just doing some dope somewhere. What kind of drugs? I, I, her, I think her girlfriend said cocaine. Okay. Pass out, I don't know. And I just, y'all, I don't, I don't associate with people like that whatsoever. I don't want to be around them. Well, I mean, the one thing that, that, you know, we do know is for a period of time that Ashley was communicating and was pretty tight with Taylor at some point. Yeah. So and I, was that done away from, yes. from you or I your told, house? I told uh, Ash, I, mean, I said, just, just don't, I said, I, I just don't bring her around our house. I don't want to be around her. And Ash is just, Ash is the type of person, she don't like confrontation. She don't want to, she probably... She, you know, she don't want to argue with nobody, anything like that. You know, she probably, you know, um, yeah, I, I, I told Ash, I, I don't want to be around her. So, I don't want to be around anybody like that. I mean, my, I cut my own brother off because of that. So, that ain't me. I don't roll like that. When he heard things about different bank accounts in the media, Zach went to go check it out himself. And sure enough, his name was on an account shared with Taylor and Ashley. He never signed for it, and he's sure that Ashley added him. There was a t-shirt business idea, but that had been something he and Ashley had mulled over, years back, and it never went anywhere. The teller told him that Taylor had been added by a form. He doesn't have the whole picture, but it's clear that Taylor was added as part of a scheme to create a legitimate avenue for Ashley to deposit her money. When they ask him about Ashley's drinking habits, he says that she didn't drink a lot, barely ever, and she also never did drugs. He repeats again, he just doesn't mess around with that stuff. He wouldn't stay with someone who does drugs. At this point, it's fair to say that Zach has barely comprehended the big picture before him, the reality of his life and all the hidden shadows between the lines. And Zach isn't yet privy to the fact that Taylor was shot from behind, in the back of the head. Maybe he thinks it was self-defense, in some drug-fueled rage. Maybe he thinks they still got it wrong somehow. Maybe he's just not sure, and he's standing by his wife until her due process has been given. But it's interesting that he's continually so passionate about drug use versus the bigger issue here, which is murder. Likewise of their financial woes, Zach was unaware that Ashley's love and affection was being directed elsewhere. As far as he was concerned, they had an amazing marriage. I love her, he tells them. The only reason they weren't getting along lately, if ever, was over raising her daughter Savannah. Ashley was raised silver spoon type, and Zach is more of a chores and responsibility guy. But they were working on it, and he thought they were fine. In terms of illuminating his involvement, Zach's more than willing to hand over whatever they want. They've already seized a few of his 19 firearms, and he's willing to give more. As far as he knows, the only kind of blood they're going to find in his truck is deer or pig's blood from hunting. He also immediately says yes when they ask if he minds submitting his phone for a data dump, but his lawyer says, we'll talk about that. The police already have his phone records anyway. All this would do, they tell him, is exonerate him. As they ask him if he has any involvement, Zach is eager to answer and say absolutely not before the officer's even finished. His lawyer interrupts him, wanting him to answer the question after it's been asked in full. Zach says again, absolutely not. It's undoubtedly awkward for both of them. This is a conversation these two men never imagined having with one another. 
He also brings up Zach's naive attitude about their finances once more. I mean, I'm interested. Did you kill or participate in the Absolutely death of? Not. I, I wouldn't ask this question. Okay. Did you kill or participate, or do you have any knowledge? Absolutely none. I don't want to be nowhere near it. No, nothing involved with it. Nothing. I know nothing about it. Did you bring your phone with you? Yeah, it's in the Jeep. You have a problem if we download it? Uh, I don't have a problem with anything. No, I don't. I don't. I mean, can you do it like quickly? If you're giving us permission to do it, as soon as we walk outside, I'll have our guys start dumping it and get it back to you. Let's talk about that. Okay. So, I mean, I, I will tell you. I mean, we do have your phone records. Yeah, and, and I figured. I, I, I'm good. I figured. Yeah. So, and I mean, bottom line is, I'd either you know help exonerate sure. him or, or not. So. Uh, Jake, I have no no involvement with this whatsoever. Well, well, Zach, that, that's the whole idea of getting you up here because I know you're in a tough situation because your wife's locked right. up for for a murder right. charge right now. So, but like I tell everybody that sits in these chairs, you know, to understand why somebody died, you also have to understand how they lived and who they hung around with. You know, uh, that, that, I, that's I the whole that. idea. I get, I get that. Uh, you know, I guess perplexes me that, and, and this is talking to you, not not about Ashley or anything else. Is that I mean, I, I, I may not whether I let if I let my wife handle the finances or I I did the finances or whatever. I got some type of idea, you know, of our money situation. If I could go to Dick's Sporting Goods and buy me a pair of shoes, and the card's not going to be declined or or anything of that nature. You know what I'm saying? If it was over a hundred dollars or something, I might would. Go, hey, can I, you know, get this? Because I, I, I didn't think she put. She told me that the my money was maybe in savings or something like that, and I, I think she kept around a thousand dollars in our account, something like that. But I mean, that's I, I didn't think we. I had no idea we had a, a money problem whatsoever. None. Just as long as you were. Are you, is it fair to say just as long as you were able to? do the things that you did you never questioned it or I, I just I, I thought she made plenty of money at working at the shops I, it never gave me a reason to question anything well and and, and then we you talked about early on I mean you know you work here at the sheriff's office we don't make a whole bunch of money and I mean forty five thousand dollars you know is you know middle to lower middle income you know and I mean I mean, I know I couldn't run my household off of forty-five I, grand. I, I'm I mean, assuming she made more than that. I really do. I mean, I thought she just did very well with that business. I had no reason to question it whatsoever. None. None. They ask him what he knows about James. He says that Ashley met him through Brandon. He just sort of hangs around and moves stuff. He built their deck, and like Ashley, he goes on to regale his fine handyman work. Again, though, he is ignorant to the money aspect. The deck itself was seven thousand dollars in materials alone. James was paid 4000 to build it. Zach had no idea. He didn't even ask about these kind of things. All of the main men in Ashley's life were benefiting from the money she was stealing from Taylor. She'd even paid his child support payments for him several weeks ago, something around $1,200. It was normally 250 a month, and he isn't sure how all of those payments were missed, because it's Ashley who pays them. He doesn't even know how the child support payments are made, maybe check or card. Cassandra had mentioned that whenever she was around, Ashley regularly complained about how Zach did nothing. But in reality, his ignorance is something she most likely depended on greatly, constantly manipulating the facts and keeping him in the dark. And it seems that was pretty easy to do. They ask him about the hammock that was found with the body, and he says it was Savannah's. He sees her as his daughter, which is why he's so passionate about how she's raised. Catching him off guard, they ask, 
What do you think happened to Taylor? And Zach genuinely doesn't know, but he does know that there is absolutely nothing that will tie him to this. I'm not that guy, man. You know me, he says. I don't break the law, man. I don't. And he also says he would never help her conceal anything. The body, the lie, nothing. But it's so difficult for him to wrap his brain around the elements of Ashley committing this crime. Like everyone else, he can't believe how obvious and sloppy it all is. What do you think happened to Taylor? I couldn't tell you, Jason. I mean, it, I don't... I don't know. I don't know. I mean, nobody nobody deserves to ever get anything happen to him like that whatsoever. I don't know, buddy. I don't know what happened to her. And, you know, I'm asking you, uh, do... As this investigation continues, whether it's text, phone records, computers financials is there going to be anything that hems you up or no, ties you absolutely nothing 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 none i'm not that guy man you know and you chasing goddamn you know me but if you're in my shoes this has to be I, I, i'm right it has to be i'm it. right y'all i mean i'm not i'm not that guy i never have been i'm never gonna be I mean, I was still, there's applications on my, my table at home, and I've been going to interviews trying to get back in law enforcement. I'm not that guy. Never going to be. I never have been. I'm a good, I'm, I'm a good person, man. I don't, I don't hang around, I don't hang out with dirtbags whatsoever, you know? Well, not just being involved in the actual murder, but as far as, you know, afterwards. Helping conceal. If, if any person in this world was like, hey, Zach, come help me do something, I would run from that motherfucker as fast as I could. I don't want no... I, hell no. 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 I don't break the law. I don't. Well, I mean, just... Hell, it's all over the news. Yeah. You've read it. Yeah, I've read right? it. read it, and I'm... I'm, I'm, and, I'm and I mean... Trying to swallow it and, 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 and figure it out. I mean, it's like... It, it's terrible. I... It sucks. But you've read it, so you know at least some of the details. And All I know is what I've read. I don't finish your question. Okay. And just based upon that and your knowledge of the job that we do and the job that you used to do, what's your thought? Feelings aside. Just logically. We didn't just fucking show up at Brit Road. I can't. I can't, I can't see her doing something like that. I mean, she's super intelligent, you know? She's got a criminal, I mean, a, uh, um... Master's degree. Yeah, or bat, is it master's or bat? I don't, I don't know, one of the two. And, and, uh, that's just sloppy. I mean, that's sloppy shit. That's sloppy. I can't see her doing that. It's super sloppy. At this point, Zach and his lawyer go into a room without a recording device to have a private conversation about his phone. But Zach has nothing to hide, and when they return, he signs it over. They ask him one more time about that day, catching any more details and finalizing what they know to compare it to what they get from the phone. He just assumed Ashley was busy working that day and gives the same story as before. He had no reason to ever wonder about anything. The officer somewhat jokingly says, I bet you wish you'd ask more questions now. Oh my god, dude. You have no idea. A week and a half after Ashley's arrest, Cassandra will be interviewed again. 
As the investigation progressed, it went from missing person to homicide, and authorities weren't sure yet if Ashley was their only suspect or if she had helped that day. Taylor had just recently cheated on Cass, but they were working things out and about to start living together. She had recently given Cass access to unlock her phone using her fingerprint, and she was one of the last people to see Taylor alive. On October 20th, around 2 p.m., Cassandra sits in an interrogation room using her phone. Dressed in her usual business casual style, she yawns, applies chapstick, sits back in her chair, and waits. The police have already spoken to her multiple times, especially since Cass is the one who reported Taylor missing and was adamant that something was wrong. She didn't feel right about things by the evening of the 8th, because it wasn't like Taylor to ignore texts all day long and then say something really strange. Cassandra had cried during every single interview. Yes, their relationship hadn't been perfect, and things had a rocky start, but she was in love with Taylor, and more than anything, she just wanted to know that she was okay. Within a few minutes, a female officer walks into the room with some paperwork and a cell phone, wrapped in a blue rubber glove that she places on the table. All right, she says, but Cassandra takes a sharp inhale, covers her face with her hand, and starts to cry. The officer is taken aback. Is that? That's her phone. I don't know, that's what I was hoping to find out. It looks like it, Cass said. The phone isn't working right now, but if it is her phone, Cass says it was working when she last saw her. She rests her elbow on the armrest of her chair, holding her head up with two fingers. She's really stressed, but she's stopped crying. She wipes away her tears and apologizes for getting emotional. Cassandra isn't the type of person who cries easily or loses sleep or breathes in a regular panicking pace. But ever since Taylor has been missing, this has become her new norm. After doing some of her own detective work to help the officer get more information about that iPhone, which might just be an old broken phone of Taylor's, she puts her own phone down, rests her hands on the table, and makes straight eye contact with the officer while they talk. She even says with full conviction, anything you need, I will get for you. All right. Is that her her phone? I I don't know. That's what I was hoping. That's what I was hoping to get from you. Um, did she have an iPhone 6? Um, I, I have a Droid, so I don't, uh, I mean an Android, so I don't know the difference between all the iPhones, but that looks like the phone. Did she have a case on it? Or? She did. She had a, um, a black and red Zoomy case. It said Zoomy on it, Z-U-M-I. Okay. Did you ever know the passcode on it? She had fingerprint. She had my fingerprint on it, too. Okay, um, cause this, this phone was found over the weekend and it's not powering on. I've had it hooked up on the charger for about two hours and it's not coming on. Do you know if she had any broken phones or? She had a broken phone, but that's, um, that was at my house and I gave that to Detective Gigliotti and Um, They weren't able to get that on either. Um, Her phone was working. I don't know where you found that phone. I don't know if like it was in water, mud, dirt, what. Mm -mm. Um, That looks like her phone. What? Who had the phone account? A girl named... uh, Oh my god, what's her name? Can I look at my phone? I have the... I didn't mean to get emotional. It's okay. You weren't expecting that, so. It's it's uh, that one right there. Do you have her phone number? Can I have it? 
I might. Or I can um, message her real quick. Yeah, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah. She may have given it to me somewhere in here. How did you find out about her? Um, in, it was like late May or early June, um, Taylor went, it was a Memorial Day weekend, Taylor went to Destin, and she was on a boat, and her phone fell in the water. Okay. And so, after that weekend, she had to go get a new phone, and I went with her to Best Buy to go get it. And it was so hard for her to get a phone, because she was on somebody else's account, but she wasn't like an authorized user to go in and get a phone. Right. And so... That's how um, I knew that she was on somebody else's account. When I was able to log into her Facebook account, whenever I had her laptops, um, I just started reaching out to people, and that's how I found out about this girl. I wanna say that there were text messages between her and I too, but you gotta forgive me. Like, not all numbers I stored, and so I gotta look and find it. Anything you need, I will give you anything that you need. It just may take me like a couple minutes to find it or something. Yeah, no, that's fine. So that's the person who the phone was through. Yes. Okay. After handing everything over that she figured was important of Taylor's, including her electronics, Cassandra gave everything else of her belongings to Jeff. And Jeff found this iPhone in an iPhone box in a duffel bag in all that stuff. Cass was with her when she got a new phone. Her other one had water damage. And she says she figures Taylor put her broken phone in the new iPhone box because that's what she always does when she gets a phone, too. Cassandra says, I'm not upset at him for giving you that phone. It just doesn't look good on my behalf. What she means by not being upset is that she's emotionally coming down from the possibility that they had Taylor's phone. But they don't. It's just her old one, and she already knew about that. The officer assures her that they aren't looking at her that way, and Cass lets out a surprised, oh, And while the officer explains that they're just going through more investigating, she lets out a big sigh of relief. She has nothing to hide, but helping the police is a lot easier when you aren't anxious that you're a person of interest the whole time. Cassandra explains how they met and the turmoil of the beginning of the relationship. Cass had given her another chance. And when she speaks about Taylor, she calls it like it is. She says things like, when she went missing, instead of vague language like, when all that happened. And the police aren't lying when they say she isn't a suspect. They just want to get more information on the record and compare it to their timeline, recent discoveries, and, of course, what Ashley has offered up to them. Cassandra describes the evening that Taylor went missing. She actually went to CVS to get a drug test because Taylor said, You can test me anytime. I'm not an addict. Cass wasn't really sure what was going on, but she didn't know what to think. It had been just over a month since Honesty Night, and she was thinking that it was about to become a repeat. She stops her story and turns her face away crying. She's upset that she was angry at Taylor. She was doubting Taylor when Taylor was already dead somewhere. After gathering herself, she apologizes. Did I even answer your question? Um, now, do you know a passcode for her phone, if someday we ever remember no, it? She, um, oh, it was your fingerprint? She did her fingerprint, and then like at the end of July, she put my fingerprint on it, too. Okay. There were a little bit of trust issues there between her and I, because I found out about another girl. Um, and... So whenever I told her, like, I didn't want her in my life anymore, like, I don't want, I don't deal with infidelity and that kind of stuff, that I deserve better. Um, Her and I, we had a conversation, and some things lined up with the girl that she was previously with and what Taylor said, so I decided to give her that second chance. And and Taylor trying to be forthcoming and transparent with everything, she, like, she wasn't doing the whole turning her phone where I couldn't see her text messages. She was letting me see as she was typing. She even put my fingerprint on her phone. I 
and go through her phone because if I had to do that, I should be with you. But right. she was trying to show me, listen, like you can trust me. So my fingerprint would open up the phone. Okay. Unless she changed it. Okay. Sorry. How long did you know Taylor? Since uh, like the first week of April this year. And how'd y'all meet? Online. On okay. Tinder. Y'all moved in shortly before she went missing, right? She Couple moved weeks. in with me. So she started moving her stuff in. Let's see, she went missing on the 8th. She started moving her stuff in the week before because um, it was like my birthday weekend. Now, I've heard conflicting stories here, and I read through your timeline. So it seems to me there was some issue where you suspected some drug use. Is that fair to say? Yeah, Taylor told me. What kind of drugs did she use? Taylor told me that she used cocaine. Okay. Three, she said three times. Mm -hmm. That's what she told me. Somebody named Christy Asian, who used to be Taylor's really good friend who lives in Fort Walton, reached out to me at the same time that I found out about the other girl. Like all this stuff just completely hit me from the side at the end of July. And uh, I was like, yeah, you know, Taylor does drugs. And um, so I called Taylor out on that too. And I told her that that was something else I didn't want in my life. And. Um, it was so that all happened on a, like a Sunday evening, and then no, Monday happened on a Monday night, and then when I told her to get out of my house, I don't know where she went and stayed that night, um, and then she blew up my phone that night and the next day and said, just please let me explain, let me explain, and I didn't respond to her, and she said, you know, if you meet me at Ash's house at it's like like five or five thirty, she goes, I'll explain everything to you at Ash. At first, I thought that was a little weird. Like, why does Ash need to be there? But at the same time, in my mind, I was thinking, damn right. Like, somebody else who's your friend is going to know what stupid stuff you do. And if she's a good friend, then somebody else knows and will help hold you accountable for not cheating or not doing drugs. So I went over to Ashley's house. Taylor was already there. Ashley wasn't there. I said this was the end of July. And... Um, Kigliati uh, and I, he named it Honesty Night because that's when she came clean with everything. And I learned about the girl Ginger and Biloxi and at the same time that's when um, I said okay let's talk about the drugs. And Taylor paused and then she said I've I've done cocaine three times. And I said bullshit like that was like the first word out of my mouth like bullshit. Nobody does something like that three times. I mean not like I know but I mean just three times really. Right. And she goes, I swear to God, she goes, I don't have an addiction. I don't have a problem with it. Um, you can test me anytime, any, whenever you want. I'll even buy all the kits randomly. You could test me every day. You could test me once a week. You could test me six months from now. You can test me whenever you want. She goes, I swear to God, it's not a problem. I just did it just because like, I was just out with people and having fun. And so that was it. I told her, I said, I don't, I don't tolerate drugs. I don't. So like the night that Taylor went missing, I had told Ash that I was running to the store to go and get granola bars. I didn't go get granola bars. I went to CVS to go get a drug test kit because at that point in time, I'm reliving everything that happened about a month before. Is she out cheating on me? Is there somebody else? Like, is she? It's okay. We know it's not true now. I mean, we know that yeah, that's not true. And you don't have to feel bad for thinking that. I mean, what else were you supposed to think? So I went to CVS to go buy a drug kit because if she came home, I wanted to test her. But I didn't want Ashley to know because I didn't know if Ashley was doing drugs with her or anything like that. I just, 
red flags went up with me with a lot of things, and I just, does that answer your question, or did I even answer the question? Yeah, yeah, what, so Taylor, all I know of is Taylor doing drugs three times from what she told me. They talk more about Taylor's drug use, how often, and how her behavior was. Cassandra is an administrator at a high school, and there's nothing in the world worth jeopardizing a career that she's so passionate about, especially being caught up with drugs. Maybe it had been more than three times, but Cassandra swears that as far as she knew, Taylor was doing amazingly after Honesty Night. She was focused, organized, less moody, and her behavior wasn't the same as it had been before. She would never classify her as erratic or unpredictable, but she was spontaneous. In a fun way, though. Ashley had said that Taylor was a huge party girl who didn't match Cassandra's personality. But Cass sees it more as a way that they complemented each other's differences. Taylor just liked to have fun, that's all. She tells the officer about the first time they went to New Orleans. They met two men who were there for a conference and ended up making a bet involving silly challenges on Bourbon Street. Cassandra lost and she had to sing karaoke. She chose Color Me Bad and it was terrible. She just brought out a different side to me. I'm a pretty reserved person. She lets out a quick smile as these memories wash over her for a brief second. She admits, though, that sometimes she looks back at these things and raises an eyebrow because she doesn't know what was authentic and what might have been chemically influenced. The officer asks about that day she went missing and how Taylor was trying to get money back from Ashley. They try to figure out how much money Ashley had of hers. Cass had been told as many different stories from Ashley as she had told the police, along with conflicting amounts of cash. Taylor had never told her the amount. Yes, they were dating, but Cass didn't necessarily make it a point to ask details about her money and her business. It was a delicate balance, especially so new into a relationship. Cassandra explains all the different amounts she was told, along with the strange stories attached to them. Some of these stories she hasn't told them before, but that wasn't because she withheld information. It's just because there's so much to look back on and remember, or things that she didn't think were relevant at the time, or things she hasn't even been asked about yet. The officer assures her that it's fine, and Cass explains how she didn't even know about all this money stuff until the night before Taylor went missing. She didn't even know about a check of hers that Ashley had signed and deposited until she read about it in the media, and Cass begins to cry. If it makes you feel any better, Taylor didn't know about it either, the officer says. Taylor had told me once that she loaned Ashley $80,000, loaned her. And the story story behind it, and that's the craziest thing, Taylor said that with, when Ashley's house, Ashley's warehouse caught on fire, that in order for Ashley to get the insurance check, Ashley had to pay off the lien on the warehouse. So Taylor, and this is Taylor's story, okay? Taylor said that she loaned Ashley money to help out with that cost, and then she said that Ashley had paid her back. That night, on Friday night, when Ashley came over, I said, Ash, can I ask you something? And I um, I said, Taylor says she loaned you $80,000. And I explained to her what I just said to you. Like, you had to pay off your your lien or something like that. And Ashley goes, no, absolutely not. She's loaned me $6,000 before um, to help out with her mom or something like that. And she she didn't say if she had paid it back or not. So that's all I have from Taylor. I don't have how much money was put in... Said unsaid safety deposit. Okay. Box. All right. Yeah, and Gigliotti may be withholding information just because I he doesn't want to Gigliotti that. that. Gigliotti didn't know that piece of information because, like, things have been coming back to me and things that 
may not have seemed relevant to me at the time whenever he was asking me questions or if he didn't ask me a question pertaining to that or I didn't think it was important like um, so I, I don't even think Igliotti knows of that okay yeah that's the first that I've heard of that so and we know that you're gonna go back now and think of all these little things that maybe didn't seem relevant or important then and now you're gonna see oh that's strange now that you know yeah like the night before Taylor went missing when her and I went out to eat dinner at Twin Peaks that's whenever Taylor was telling me all about Ashley how that was the first time I heard of it I didn't know like I found out through the freaking media that 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 check was put into uh, Ashley's account in the middle of our I didn't even know like I'm um, anyway, um, if it makes you feel better, Taylor didn't know either, so she didn't know. The night before Taylor went missing, they had gone out to dinner, and Ashley had randomly shown up for 20 minutes. She didn't eat or drink anything. All she did was sit around and complain about how lazy Zach is, and they planned to go to a football game together. Cass wasn't really paying much attention. She doesn't care for football, and she's only met Ashley's husband once. She explains how Ashley and Taylor met. Taylor dated a woman at the police station named Jess, who was friends with Zach, and married to Ashley. She ended up becoming much closer to Ashley than Zach. As they get to talking, she also mentions the trip to New Orleans, where Audrey was ill. But her versions of events is different than Ashley's. That easy-breezy open marriage with Zach didn't seem so easy-breezy after all. I don't know if you know about this, but when Taylor and I went to um, New Orleans in the middle of August... And this is this is according to Ashley. It was there was supposed to be four of us, and then it ended up just being Taylor and I going on Friday night because one of the girls' um, mother passed away, and so she she decided she wasn't going to go. And then Ashley said that she was just going to wait till Saturday and convince the girl to come just for the night to go and get her mind off of things. So Taylor and I went on Friday night. Ash and the other girl named Audrey was supposed to show up Saturday uh, morning, like. 10, 11, they never did. And um, Ash didn't end up getting into New Orleans until like 11, 11.30 at night, but they ended up going straight to the hospital because Audrey had like a gallstone or some, something like that blocking. She ended up having surgery in New Orleans. Um, but Ashley said the reason why it took her so long to get there was because Zach stalked her and followed her there and pulled her off the road and they fought for hours. Not like physically fought, but arguing. And Taylor and I, we kept blowing up Ashley's phone. Like, we even went out to dinner. We ordered Ashley something. Ashley never showed up. She kept saying, I can't get Zach to leave me alone. So. Hmm. Did you ever end up meeting that Audrey girl? Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen her since then? Um, since the New Orleans trip? Mm-hmm. Um, yes. She came to my surprise birthday brunch that Taylor put together. I didn't know she was coming. Audrey's not my friend. Ashley's not my friend. Right. These are people that I know because of Taylor. The officer asks about Friday the 8th, the last day she saw Taylor. She asks if she knew her plans and what bank they were going to. Taylor was so bad with directions, she'd usually describe things with landmarks and cases that she'd worked. But during dinner the night before, when she was telling Cass about all the money issues, she said the last time they drove to the bank, she swore that Ashley was driving to the wrong one on purpose. All she knows is it had something to do with a Wells Fargo branch. Again, Cassandra's account of that morning differs from Ashley. Taylor didn't have any stuff to take to Ashley's office. Ashley picked Taylor up in her black Jeep, not Zach's truck. And they didn't leave before Cass. Cass left first. But Ashley came and picked her up. Yeah. And she was in what kind of car? Black four-door Jeep. 
Okay. Oh. And you were standing outside, so you saw her actually pull up? Yeah. Taylor and I, we were literally walking out to my car, and we stopped in the carport, and we talked about having wings for dinner that night, that I was going to go sort out t-shirts for this water safety event that I had the next week, and then after that I was going to go to the grocery store, and um, then I was going to come home and I was going to paint my master bedroom. And we hugged and we kissed, and as I started walking out to my car, Ashley pulled up, and she pulled up at the end of the street, and I was like, hey, Ash, and she goes, hey, Cass, and I was like, oh, have a good one, I'm like, see you later, and she goes, all right, literally got my car and I left, so I left the house before they did, Okay. but Taylor was all ready to go and everything, so I don't foresee um, her having to do anything, dabble anything, but I don't know. The officer asks if she thinks Taylor had a gun on her, and she isn't sure. Along with the drug use and erratic behavior, police are trying to gather evidence as to what kind of confrontation, or lack thereof, went down between the two women. Taylor was shot in the back of the head, but that wouldn't be the only thing to prove that the murder was not committed in any kind of self-defense. Cass is sure that she had a gun on her property. She definitely kept one in her car. She only knew her to have two, but everyone else keeps saying that Taylor had a plethora. Cass had taken pictures of the two guns, and she sends them to the officer. She had given them to Ashley because she didn't want them in her house. During other interviews, police have gathered statements from Ashley's friends, who claim that she bought cocaine and spiked a beer of Taylor's in an attempt to have her die of an overdose. Nothing happened, though, besides Taylor spitting out a mouthful of beer and saying it tasted sour. Cass hasn't heard anything connected to these statements, as she tries to rack her brain. She knows Ashley said Taylor was drinking beer that morning, and even that doesn't make sense to her. She didn't prefer beer. Taylor didn't day drink. Everything she's hearing, all these pieces of information, are just so hard for her to process. Between all the strange accusations that Ashley is saying, what the police are asking, and what she knows, it continues to be an emotional roller coaster for her. And Cass is angry because she was the one who reported Taylor missing, when everyone else, right down to her ex-husband and friends, all seemed to believe this crazy idea that she would just take money and skip out on her son. Where Ashley took every opportunity to attack who Taylor was, Cass is heartbroken to see her mischaracterized this way. Ash told me that that day she was drinking, that Taylor was drinking that day, um, which is odd, because Taylor wouldn't, like, she wouldn't start so damn early. She wouldn't. And what would she drink? What would she drink? Mm -hmm. Normally, Taylor likes um, like mixed drinks, like uh, margaritas or Red Bull vodka. Um, if she drinks beer, she's going to drink Shop Top. Sometimes when she's out, she'll order Stella, um, but that's primarily what she sticks to. But anything like I bought and put in the fridge, she would have. Like if I had Red's apple, she would drink that. Or, um, but she did have her go-tos, which were the ones that I already mentioned to you. Okay. Would she get anything, say, like a Bud Light or Budweiser or something you could buy at a gas station? Would Taylor get that? Yeah, would she? If it was all that was available, I don't know. I mean, she'd have to be pretty desperate because Taylor's drink of choice, like on a day like that she went missing, would be Powerade Zero. Hands down. Every time. Like, that's what, when Ash told me that she was drinking that day, it just, that didn't add up. I mean, there's so many things, like, everybody gave up on Taylor and said, oh, maybe Taylor's just off doing this. And, like, there was so many things that told me she did it. Yeah. Um, like, she wouldn't have been drinking early in the day. I mean, not unless it was, like, coaxed or somebody was like, let's have a beer or something like that. But Taylor wouldn't have. I mean... Keep in mind, I'm only going off of like the five months that I've been around Taylor, but she wasn't that person who would wake up and start in the morning or even before noon and start drinking. She just would. Mm -hmm. 
And then, and then even when, even when she would drink, like Taylor was always the one taking care of other people. She never got sloshed. Cass texted Ashley when she thought something was wrong. Cass starts to cry, covering the back of her neck with one hand and rubs. She's self-soothing because she's embarrassed about the text she sent Taylor after that. For the first few days, she just wasn't sure what to think. Was she missing, or did she actually take off? Because given what Ashley told her, a part of her didn't want to think the worst with no reason to. The police had read through all of the text. Cassandra had offered her phone and they kept it for almost five days. They're sincere in the emotional context of what was happening between them at the time. Ashley sent Cass a screenshot of a text message Taylor sent her about how she needed to get her life organized. Cass says it's bullshit. I know that Ash kept conversing with you after you felt like something was wrong. Um... There well, was, like the, I mean, I knew something was wrong, but there was part of me that thought, okay, like for like the first two days, maybe three days, I felt like maybe she did, you know, go on her own. I was so up. I was like an emotional roller coaster. I got angry with her. Mm-hmm. You'll see all that with the text. No, oh, yeah, I, I saw, and it's totally understandable. You know, what were you supposed to think? Um. Now, I know that there is a text, supposedly, that Taylor sent to her son, Drake. Do you still have that screenshot? Send it to you? Yeah. Yeah, Jeff sent it to me. Yeah, I, he said he was going to send it to me, but just in case he lost it or something, I want to have it. I have, like, the call log that night between them, and then I have the text. So you want both? Yeah, just send them both. There's a screenshot also that supposedly Taylor sent to Ashley. Do you remember seeing that one? Mm-hmm. I have that, have that too. That? Mm-hmm. Now, I haven't got rid of anything. Okay, now you know how Taylor would respond in a text message. The one that you saw, that screenshot that she sent Ash, did that sound like something that Taylor would say? Mm-hmm. What was different about it? Can you maybe... She says she needs to get her life organized and back on track. Taylor didn't feel like her life was unorganized. She didn't have to get anything back on track. The only thing that she had to do was give her money to the ex that the judge ordered her to do. Mm-hmm. And she was coming to her senses on that because I kept pushing her and telling her, just give him the damn money. Like, a judge told you to do that. You know, like, it sucks. Nobody wants to come up off of 30000 cash, but you have the money. We're financially fine, you know, so give him the money. And I think that's why she was going to get it, because she was at that final deadline date, which is why she lied about the continuance, which I found about after she went missing. Um, but the whole need to get my life organized. And, and furthermore, like going to have a drink by herself, she knew I was off Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. She would it like actually lose like two miles down the road from me. it. Just none of it added up. None of it made sense. But like, as for looking for grammatical errors and things like that, I didn't notice anything too okay. much. Yeah, I was thinking maybe... I don't know, just the way she wrote it. Everybody's got their style. And then, and then the one that Ashley sent, the I need a few days, the move has me stressed. Taylor wasn't stressed out about the move. She was excited. Cass doesn't know a lot about Drake, but she does know that they spoke every single night at the same time. Since honesty night, Taylor had a wake-up call and hadn't missed an evening speaking to her son since then. I cared about her already, but she had become an even better person, Cass explains. And as they get to talking at one point, the officer says how confusing it's been to track everything of Taylor's, who has what and why. 
Cassandra tells her that she works three minutes away and that the police never have to apologize for bothering her. They aren't bothering her. She wants to help them out as much as possible. Out of everyone police have interviewed, Cass is the only person with this forthcoming attitude. I don't know. Listen, I work like three minutes away. I will come anytime you need. Okay. I will answer any texts or phone calls. Like Detective Gibliotti kept saying, I'm sorry for bothering you. Don't ever apologize. Like I want to help you guys out as much as possible. Yeah, no, I mean, things are going to come up because we're going to find out stuff. And, you know, we just, whenever we find stuff out, we'll check on you and see what you know about it. The officer asks about James, the homeless man who was living at Ashley's office. Cass says he's rough around the edges, but kind. She met him once. He had driven a big safe of tailors to her house using one of Ashley's work trucks. Police were still interested in all players involved, especially the men in Ashley's life who may want to do favors for her. James, Zach, maybe even Kyle. Cass does, however, start to cry when she asks if there's a reason she should be afraid of Zach. Weeks ago, Richard had told her that she had no reason to fear Ashley. Well, that's obviously changed. Cass isn't dumb to the fact that the authorities are keen to the possibility that Ashley didn't work alone. The officer assures her that they've spoken to Zach and she doesn't need to worry about him. Never let your guard down, but as far as him, no. There would be no reason for anyone to try to hurt Cass. She isn't really a witness to anything, even if she has information. She asks about Ashley's hearing next Thursday and if she can go to it, but the officer doesn't know any more than her. It might just be a bond hearing. She explains how she can look up the public records to find everything out. Cass asks if she should go, and the officer says it's up to her, but nothing interesting is really going to happen until the trial. She also explains what depositions are and how everyone will be meeting with the attorneys to be asked questions that will become the reference for the trial. Before the interview wraps up, Cass gets vulnerable again and asks if there's any point when she'll become privy to the information about the case, just like everyone else who is close to Taylor. It's painful to watch the very people who told Cass they didn't care to be the ones who get information first about what's happening with the investigation. When Taylor's dental records were confirmed, everyone found out before Cass, even an aunt who lives states away. I feel like I'm not privy to certain information because I'm not the ex-husband and I'm not the father. Is that how this will always be? Because that it is what it is, but it breaks my heart because they all gave up on her. They said, don't contact me. They said that she's probably out doing this stuff all on her own. And it just bothers me that they're getting all this information. And like, for example, I didn't even know until late Thursday night that the dental records proved that it was her. Like they knew, they like, Joan, the aunt, told me that she knew that on Wednesday. Actually, I found out on Friday night. I don't even know who Joan is. Joan Huskins, the aunt who lives in Connecticut. So just, it's hard. I get it. I'm just the girlfriend, but just, it hurts. Are you still in touch with Jeff? Yeah, but he's not real quick. I feel like Jeff says things and then he turns around and he does something a little bit different. Um... I mean, I'm hoping that because he got to interact and meet me over the last two days that he thinks otherwise. He didn't know me from the next. Mm -hmm. And he can see that I'm, I am a genuine, kind person that's honest. Hopefully he gathered that. Um, but I know he's busy with his work and everything. And I don't want to always blow up his phone and say, do you have any information? Do you have any information? But he did tell me the other day, whenever I told him that I'm not getting information that you guys are, not you, but him, are getting, he's like, we'll make sure that you get information. It just, just bothers me. Um, 
And, and a lot of it's because you've got the two agencies. PPD was working it. Now that it's our homicide, they're not going to release information because they don't want to release information that we might be trying to keep quiet. So that's why you might not be getting stuff from them. And as far as me, but it's being told you know. to like Jeff and Randy and, and Joan has this information. Like if it's being told to them, how come I'm not being told? Yeah. And I get I get the frustration, but we'll it try just to keep you hurts. up. We'll try to keep you up to date. I mean I'll answer whatever questions that I can, but there's stuff that even I won't answer to them. I get it. Gigliotti gave me one oh one detective. Oh basically. yeah, we gotta keep stuff close because if it comes out to. somebody else that's involved, if it comes out I need to know for sure that facts that I've kept quiet, mm -hmm. if they know a fact about a case, and this is just generally speaking, mm -hmm. that way I can figure out if they're telling me the truth or not. Right. No, I get it. I, I guess I was just referring more to, you know, like, as for, the only thing I'm really frustrated about was I didn't know that the dental records confirmed it was her, and I had to find that out, and I thought that somebody would have at least told me that. that her. Yeah. So, anyway. Well. Maybe, maybe they'll come to some sort of a resolution. Nope, doubt that. But appreciate the kind words. Have, and hope. Has there been any discussion about the arrangements? The officer asks if there's going to be any arrangements for Taylor. Cass mentions a celebration of life that they're planning in two weeks. Taylor wasn't religious. This is what she would want, just a casual party with friends and music, the people who really loved her the most. Cass cries as she says, she wouldn't want anybody sad. She would want us to party. So that's what we're going to do. Kyle was officially cleared after seven long hours of questioning. He had nothing to hide and was as shocked as everyone else that his cousin had murdered a woman in cold blood right on their family farm. She had been calling to make sure he wasn't around that morning, not because she needed help. Part of maintaining the perfect facade was not allowing anyone into this deep, dark secret. More and more, it was looking like she had in fact worked alone. Through interviews with other people, authorities would hear about a possible attempt to harm Taylor before that day on Britt Road. One night at Sticks, while her friends Audrey and Jessica were there, Ashley had been talking about how the world would be a better place without Taylor in it, and wondered out loud how much it would take for someone to overdose and die from cocaine. Jessica guessed an eight ball, and sure enough, Audrey and Ashley headed over to Babes to carry out a deal for exactly that amount. Both Jessica and Audrey had been requested to interview with the police, but lawyered up immediately. Brandon Beatty, their boss and the owner of Sticks, also lawyered up immediately after some initial questioning. Everyone was on high alert, and everyone seemed to have something to hide. And so far, police still had a few more significant names to cross off their list. Brandon's interview is really telling about the relationship he had with Ashley. It's never fun when the girl you're dating ends up on national television for homicide charges. And for as much as he would prefer to distance himself from the entire thing, Brandon was smack in the middle of this. It would appear that a few elements of this open marriage were kept from Zach, like the cell phone, the motorcycle, the boat. But even those were just a few items on a long list of gifts and favors that Ashley carried out in the name of some whirlwind crush. For someone trying to play it cool, her text messages to Brandon portray her like an immature girl desperately attempting to win this guy's attention, no matter how much it would cost. By now, Brandon, as well as all the other men in Ashley's life who may want to repay her kindness, were all cleared. Most even granted immunity in some form or another for other possible charges they had. Even with that appeasement, Brandon is pissed that he has to keep missing work for this. He assures them that he doesn't know anything, 
But he's asked for an attorney to be present during his questioning, so he's been brought in under subpoena. Since he seems to have more information about things Ashley has said or done, they really need those details. Besides his frustration, he's also a little scared, because at this point Ashley is out on bond. I've never heard somebody with a murder charge being out on bond, he says, worried that he'll get in trouble if she reaches out to him. That would be grounds to revoke her bond, so they assure him he probably has nothing to worry about. In a way, not only was Brandon the prime receiver of Taylor's money and the things it bought, but he was Jessica and Audrey's boss. The conversation about cocaine was something he'd been privy to. He wasn't there, but he was told about it after the arrest. He was told the same story. Ashley had asked how much coke it would take to kill someone, and then she purchased it at the strip club. When they ask about fights at the club, Brandon couldn't tell you about a specific one. Ashley catches him there with other girls all the time. For as easygoing as she is about her husband sleeping with other women, it seems to be the opposite when it comes to Brandon. She wanted us to be more than we was, Brandon tells them. And it sounds like Ashley was pulling out all the stops, appearing effortlessly generous, getting him whatever he wanted and needed like it was no big deal, paying bills at his business, restocking supplies, buying rounds of drinks for everyone, laptops for his employers. You know, just casual stuff like that. If he asked, or if he even just said he wanted something, she usually got it right away. When he's asked to estimate a figure of what she spent on him, his ballpark is somewhere around 75000 at least. So what I'm interested in today is finding out a little bit more about that conversation. So can you, do you remember the details of what you and... I wasn't there when they, the conversation was had. Okay. But, I, you know, after she got arrested, they, they, they told me about that okay. conversation. So what, explain that to me. I How did you asked, find out about this? Jessica or Audrey, I can't remember which one. one of, she asked Jessica and Audrey how much... Would cocaine would it take to kill someone? Now, when you say she, who do you mean? Ashley. Okay. Uh, Ashley asked one of the girls how much would it take to kill someone, and Jessica said an eight ball or something, and then her and Audrey actually went and purchased it from uh, a nightclub. Okay, which nightclub? Uh, they bought it from a... Uh, they met a guy at a nightclub at Babes. Mm -hmm. So, who went to the... Who went to Babes? Ashley and Audrey. Okay. And now this is just what they told me. You know, I, I'm, I wasn't there. I don't really yeah. know. <laughs> right. I, I, please understand. This is just a very informal interview. So you know, all this, don't worry about like, oh, that's hearsay and all that. We're just, that's all down the road. We're just here to get information. So you can speak freely. Now, when was this that they went to Babes? I, 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 to be honest with you, I don't really know. Okay. I, you know, I don't really know. If I knew, I'd tell you, you know, I don't. Do you remember an incident happening at Babes where Ashley showed up and you were already there? Maybe there was an argument several times or something. She's been there, several times. Were there several times that there were arguments taking place between the two of you? Was that a common occurrence? Uh, we never or? really... I don't think we ever had an argument there. Okay. Something about maybe you were with somebody else and she caught you there with another girl. Oh, she's done that several times, though. I mean, okay. she caught me with a different girl several times. Okay, so you don't remember specifics about that? I don't know, you know, I don't know what time you're talking about. Like, she walked in, I was in there with my ex-girlfriend, or, you know, I don't I don't talk to any strippers, really, so it had to been somebody that I've dated before or something, you know? Okay. Um, do you remember a time that Ashley would have shown up with either Jessica or Audrey, and there was some sort of confrontation? I mean, she showed up for sure several times, but I don't ever think there was ever, like, a real confrontation, though. Okay, something in the parking lot, maybe her blocking you in or something like that. I'm sure. I mean, she bought me at a bunch. Okay, so I'm just being honest with you. It was kind of just, yeah, I mean, it's just frequent kind of frequent behavior. Yeah. 
Because she was kind of jealous, I guess. Oh, yeah. She wanted to date, you know, be a little more than we was. Okay. On that note, I understand that she was supplying you and your business with uh, money, goods, you know, drinks, okay. supplies, stuff like that. Is that... I mean, Fair yeah, she, to say. She, she bought stuff for us for sure. Yeah, everybody in the everybody in the bar. Okay, how much over the course of your relationship with her do you think that she spent on you? Shit, a lot. Seventy five thousand. Okay, so a lot. Okay. <laughs> over the, that year. And what were some of the big purchases? Uh, she gave me thirty thousand dollars for a boat one time. She bought me a motorcycle, it was like nine thousand. I guess that's about it. Uh tires for my truck like 20 something hundred i mean she spent a lot like she bought the, the people in their laptops two people laptops uh, she bought me a telephone similarly to zach he never asked ashley about where all these funds were coming from he just figured that she had money to spend and loved to spend it she was always blowing funds she'd regularly take his friends out to dinner and pay for the entire table and she was more or less humble about it so it wasn't really his business he figured if she wanted to buy him a boat he'd let her buy him a boat And after Ashley was arrested, he sold everything right away. But there isn't anything nefarious behind that, he assures them. He can tell them who he sold it to, and he sold it at a season in the middle of winter for barely what it was worth. He didn't have it professionally cleaned or anything. He just wanted to get rid of it. They ask about Jessica and Audrey, who have since lawyered up immediately when they were asked to come in for questioning. He sees them together here and there as the two are good friends. They're nervous too, mentioning that Ashley was out on bond and they couldn't believe it where Zach had no issue sharing a bed with an accused murderer. The friends who knew her best were terrified to even run into her on the street by chance. How could you ever feel okay around a person who could kill you when your back was turned? All of them found it chilling that they had trusted this person to the full extent. She asks why he thinks they got lawyers, and Brandon says it's either because they're scared about the cocaine stuff or they were there. But he doesn't really think it's the latter. Keep in mind, you have full immunity here, the officer reminds Brandon, and she asks him to share anything and everything that he knows. And for as detached or as apathetic as Brandon may be during some parts of his interview, he already shows more empathy than Ashley when it comes to the murder of Taylor Wright. Look, if I knew anything, an innocent female died that had a seven-year-old kid, I would flat out tell you. When it comes to the whole Taylor thing, Ashley never really talked about it. The only thing she said once that gives him massive hesitation now is when she made a remark that they'd never find Taylor because she was gone. As far as he knew, she had some crazy friend who took off with her husband's money, and otherwise she never brought it up. Keeping in mind that you're here under subpoena, which means that you have immunity. Mm-hmm. Okay, he went into all the fancy state attorney's office, <laughs> you know, lawyer. Mm-hmm. He hangs out with lawyers all day long. Okay, mm-hmm. I don't hang out with lawyers all day long. So I'm going to keep it real simple for you. Mm-hmm. Immunity. You've heard of it before, right? Can't be charged. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So with that in mind, I want you to tell me everything completely whole truth everything put it all out on the table if there's anything that we didn't discuss before then we're starting with a clean slate okay because we talked before yeah right and now we're here you've been offered this gift by them they're not going to charge you with anything so it's time if there was anything that was left out before to get it all out there okay if there was anything i would tell you i mean Flat out, if I knew anything, an innocent female died that had a seven-year-old kid, I would flat tell you. Okay. I mean, she never mentioned to me that she killed the girl. 
The only thing that gets me a little bit is the one time I asked her, did they ever find your friend? She says, fuck no, they'll never find that bitch. She's gone. I'm like, huh? But she told me she ran off with $290,000 or what? No, $30,000 or whatever. How long do you think that was before this all happened and came out? It was in the middle of September 8th and October 19th. It was in the middle of there somewhere, you know? I can't say if it was the 15th of October or the 10th of February, you know? But I don't know exactly how long the girl's, you know, okay. missing for before she was reported missing or whatever either. Though. Now, did you know her, Taylor? I never met her. Never I've met never her. seen her or nothing. I've seen a picture of her, like her and Ashley, or maybe two girls or something in New Orleans. Like Ashley sent me a picture one time, like mm -hmm. on either text or Snapchat, but that's the only time I'd ever even laid eyes on that girl. Okay. And then obviously you find out that Ashley has a friend that went missing. Yeah. Okay. Well, she what? said the girl ran away, though. Like, was leaving her husband, stole the money, and hauled butt. But she said it was like $290,000, too. She didn't say it was no. I think you have to make 30 to 35,000 or something, 34,000. Okay. And did she ever say anything else about Taylor? Never. Not, not that I can remember. I mean, she never brought it up, but I remember like, you know, seeing on the news where the girl was still missing or whatever. And, and I asked her, hey, did they ever find your friend? And she, that's when she said that. I was like, wow. That's, you know, if my friend comes up missing, I'd never say, no, fuck him. He ain't never going to find him. Right. You know, you'd be like, hold on. You know, where's my buddy at? Did she seem concerned? No. Not at all. Like, she thought her friend was ran away, like, I guess, wherever. Okay. I can't believe you haven't brought in that James guy, Brandon says unprompted. He'd introduced Ashley to James, the homeless man who was living at her office. He paid him $10 a day to do easy stuff around sticks, like take the trash out, but he relapsed and Brandon more or less fired him. Between Brandon, Kyle, James, and Zach, police are keen to figure out if any of them would be someone Ashley would call for help. Even Brandon shares their suspicions. I just don't see Ashley doing that by herself, you know? And like Zach, he's astonished at all the rookie mistakes she's made, bringing up the fact that she did everything right on her own property. I mean, I just don't see it. Ashley's a little, small girl, you know? I just don't see her picking that girl up, digging a hole. Nah, I don't see it. I can't believe that... Y'all haven't had that James guy involved in it. That just, that wears me out there. Why do you say that? Because, I mean, the girl was paying for his phone. He's living behind her office. You know, that's, he drove her, was driving her truck that time. A little weird, you know? Well, now you're the one that introduced her to James, right? Yeah, because I, I told him, he, he'd come in the pool and I'd pay him $10 a day to take the trash out. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said, look, if you get sober, I'll actually work you some. So he, he, shoot, he was sober for months, five, six months. And then he got drunk again, so I ran him off. Okay. And that's when he was helping Ashley a little bit. But I told her, like, like hey, you need to cut him off, run him off. And she, oh, I did, I did. But he's still behind the building over there, I was, you know. But I haven't seen him either since all this crap happened. Okay. Did you ever... I just don't see Ashley doing that by herself, you know. If she did it, you know, I don't, I'm, I think she did, though. I mean, how's the girl's body on my girl's property, you know. I mean, that's kind of a dumbass move there. But, yeah, I just don't see it. I mean, Ashley's a little small girl, though, you know? I don't see her picking that girl up and digging a hole. Nah, I just don't see it. But Ashley wasn't a small little girl. She's a 40-year-old woman who is quite fit and active. Even she herself said she wasn't, quote, a girly girl. She was into sports. She loved to go hiking and shoot guns. She could ride horses and care for them. Not only was she familiar with tough farm work, she was familiar with all the machinery at the property. It's doubtful that if Ashley murdered Taylor, she then threw her heavy body over her back and carried her all the way to the fence line. 
Ashley had called friends that day, huffing and puffing, getting off the phone quickly. Digging a hole is probably one of the least challenging tasks that she carried out that day. Her adrenaline pumping through her veins obviously made her stronger, but not smarter. As they're wrapping up, the officer again makes sure that Ashley has never made any sort of statements to him that, looking back, he thinks could be worthwhile sharing for their investigation. He tells them absolutely not, that he'd even be willing to take a lie detector test about it. She's never admitted anything whatsoever, not even to anything in self-defense. And he can't see anyone who knows Ashley attempting that, because she's always carrying a gun on her. The only thing she said that was ever remotely violent at all was about a girl he was seeing. She said something about how she needed to disappear. But she meant it in more of a, she needs to get away from you because I want to be exclusive kind of way. Yes, she could freak out when she was jealous, but honestly, not as much as you'd think. Ashley had even caught Brandon in bed with another girl, and she hadn't done a thing. Until now, he figured she was harmless. Needy, but harmless. All right, so she's never made any statement to you whatsoever that she had any knowledge of what happened to Taylor. Never. Not one time. She told me the girl ran away. I mean, that, that's... She never told me the girl was dead, ever. Okay, so she never admitted to you no. that she... No, I mean, I'll answer that on a lie detector test. Okay. I mean... Did she ever tell you that she had killed Taylor in self-defense? No. Did she ever tell you that she was afraid of Taylor? No. She told me the girl was a lesbian or whatever and was leaving her husband or something. Did she ever tell you about any kind of a sexual relationship that she had with Taylor? No. Do you know of her to have sexual relationships with women? Not that I know of. Okay. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you think is important that I need to know? Not that I can think of. I mean, anything that since we talked last has just been burning you up? No, no. I mean, like, I just, oh man, I, I wish I could tell her. What burns me up? She's on the street. That's what burns me up. You know, I mean, mm. it's a, if a girl did this, which I'm pretty, you know, makes you kind of believe she did, you know. But all that self-defense stuff, I don't, I wouldn't, you know. I wouldn't, I couldn't believe that shit. I mean, I don't know. I know I don't want to be around it. Why wouldn't you believe that? Well, I mean, Ashley carried a gun. I mean, anybody, I'm not going to run up on somebody with a gun, you know, or any of that. So, would it be a fair statement that anybody that knew Ashley wouldn't know that she keeps a gun with her? Oh, yeah, pretty much. Did she brag about it? Oh, she said several times, you know. That's why you don't leave home without a gun. But, you know, for a year, I was around her, mm. 12, 14 months or something. So, I mean, I've heard it several times. I mean, she might not tell every person she comes in contact with, but anybody that knew her, that you'd ever been in her vehicle, she keeps a gun in her car. Did you ever hear her make a comment that before Taylor went missing that she needed to disappear, that that, that bitch needed to disappear? You know, I've heard Ashley say that, but I don't know if it was about Taylor but I know she said that about, like, two of my girlfriends. Like, they just need to disappear, like, quit being involved. Because she wanted to be, like, in a relationship and all this shit. I got a wife at the house. I ain't interested in all that. But she wanted, you know, like, the other girls to just quit coming around. But she wouldn't, you know, disappear. Like, her disappearing, my disappearance is a little different, I guess. <laughs> my disappearance is, like, block your phone number, quit calling me. Her disappearance might, like, be digging a hole. I don't know. Valid point. <laughs> yeah. But. I mean, Ashley's never been violent. I've never seen her violent. I'm being honest with you. I've never seen her. Like, she never slapped me or 
I mean, she caught me butt naked with a girl in bed and didn't do nothing stupid. Mm-hmm. All right, but you don't remember any kind of conversation happening at your bar where Ashley was talking about her friend Taylor. We've never really talked about that girl, though. Not that I can remember. Only okay. The only conversation I remember was when I asked her, you know, did they ever find your friend? And that's when she said, fuck, no, they'll never find a bitch. She's gone. One by one, different people were eliminated, and there would only be one person left standing with the means and motive for Taylor Wright's death. In January 2019, the state was hoping to see Ashley put into custody for separate charges. Before the murder trial, Judge Jan Shackelford would oversee another week-long trial involving the businesses Azalea Cocktail Lounge and Seville Quarter and Ashley's family business, Pensacola Automatic Amusement. They claim that from 2015 to 2017, right up until her arrest, Ashley had embezzled thousands of dollars over time, a total somewhere around 14000 When the management at Azalea's became aware of her stealing from the jukebox, they set up a meeting with Ashley to go over the theft. However, Ashley canceled last minute. Turns out that very morning, Automatic Amusement's office caught on fire. At the time, nobody else would have been the wiser, but now it appeared that it had been set on purpose, and who else would have anything to gain from insurance claims besides Ashley? She was charged with fraud, racketeering, and arson. It would only take the jury several hours to return their verdict. Ashley was found guilty on all of the charges except arson as it was too circumstantial. She would immediately return to the county jail, this time without the chance of bond. And she would wait there for another seven months to stand trial for the murder of Taylor Wright. It wouldn't be until August 2019 that every single person would have the full picture of this story. Prosecutor Bridget Jensen was prepared to pull out all the stops. She knew that the defense was going to try to mischaracterize Taylor Wright and bring in the idea of self-defense. She knew the defense was going to insinuate that Ashley didn't act alone, or maybe somebody else did this altogether. If they failed to show every aspect, whatever was left in the dark could leave doubt in the jury's mind. So Jensen decided to put every single person on the stand during the trial, so the jury could truly judge for themselves. She knew that everything was circumstantial and how much a jury tends to favor evidence of a forensic nature, but the pile they had against Ashley was massive. Judge Jan Shackelford is a straight shooter that doesn't like to sugarcoat things. She's not afraid of a harsh sentence, and it's safe to say that she probably has more fans on the prosecution side of things. Juries tend to love her, though. Usually, jury members tend to have a positive outlook towards the judge, wanting to do well in their position in the court. Judge Shackelford makes it easy. She treats them with respect. She asks for their time instead of demanding it. She works with their schedule as best she can, and she's strict when it comes to how time is spent in the courtroom. She's cutthroat when it comes to procedure, and she doesn't like having to repeat herself. Jensen is brilliant and simple during opening statements. She lays out a timeline that will be supplemented with evidence and witness testimony, proving that Ashley had motive and means to murder Taylor Wright and cover it up. Ashley is in the courtroom with a black blazer over a gray dress, her hair up in a ponytail, showing the first signs of gray now. She writes furiously on a notepad in front of her while Jensen reads out all of the text messages that Taylor had sent for weeks, trying to get her money back. She explains how important these text messages are because they show both the pressure that Taylor was under to get the money and the pressure she was putting on Ashley. Ashley held her head up and had nothing to write down while her defense attorney, John Barisett, told the jury that throughout the trial, they would find absolutely no shred of concrete evidence linking Ashley to the murder. They can't prove where it happened, 
They can't prove when it happened, and they can't prove who did it. He describes the chaos of Taylor's life to the most hyperbolic state that the truth will allow. She was consumed with an ugly custody battle that she wanted to win at all costs. And there were snags in her current relationship with Cassandra, which he describes as extremely volatile. Cocaine, cheating, nobody was surprised that Taylor didn't show up for court. And if anything, people were angry with her at first, not worried. After hoping to plant the idea in their minds that Ashley had much less motive than other people, he reminds them that nobody saw anything unusual at the farm for weeks and weeks after the murder. He wraps up by talking about how good of a friend Ashley was to Taylor, giving her a key to her house, watching her child, being the friend she could turn to. But the prosecution was ready for this character attack, for the implied gaps in their case. Even if they didn't have DNA, they had everything else. Taylor's ex-husband Jeff would only spend 15 minutes testifying. The prosecution started by asking him about Drake, who happened to be turning nine years old that week. Taylor withdrew $100,000 in July of 2017, and she also owed him child support payments. Jensen establishes that Taylor didn't show up for court when she was supposed to, and how he came to know that she was missing. The defense would use Jeff to verify that Taylor had an extensive background in law enforcement. She served on the academy in Jacksonville on and off from 2008 until 2013. Fair to say she was trained in physical combat and was known to carry a gun? Barisette asks. Yes. The defense makes sure that Jeff repeats again how difficult Taylor was making it to get the money back, and that there was obvious contempt between the two of them. In a world where the husband usually did it, Jeff couldn't have been further from the suspect pool in every way, despite their personal issues during the disappearance. And with that, he was dismissed. When Jensen calls Cassandra to the stand, the first thing she does is allow her to describe the relationship she had with Taylor in her own words. It wasn't volatile at all. Somehow, what had happened between them had brought them closer. Cass reported her missing on September 10th at 8 in the morning. She got sniffly talking about her missing, about honesty night, and how for the first couple of days, she was angry. Her instincts said something was wrong, but because of Taylor's lies, she wasn't entirely sure. Cassandra had nothing to hide, but she knew that the defense team was still going to have a field day with her on the stand. If Taylor's murder had been the worst thing that ever happened to her, being on the stand at this trial was the second. When asked a direct question, you must give a direct answer, a simple yes or no. Unless you're asked to elaborate, you have to trust that the prosecution will give you that chance to clear up any loose ends. Still, it's a challenge when you know what the defense is trying to do. And Cassandra will be the first one that has to grit her teeth and bear the frustration of this. And Barisette brings up the text messages she sent in those first couple of days, calling Taylor a liar, a drug user. Cassandra agrees that she was angry. She agrees that there was nothing about Taylor and Ashley's friendship that ever caused her concern. That there was constant turmoil with Jeff, and that Taylor had a win-at-all-costs attitude. She agreed that Taylor wasn't meek or shy, and that she had never outright asked Ashley, where is my money? Although Cassandra says she did ask, just not in those words. And then more random questions to string insinuations together. Only she and Taylor could access her phone using their thumbprints. She had asked Ashley for a gun immediately after Taylor went missing. She was afraid of Jeff. She wanted the stuff left in her driveway gone, even if it had only been a couple days. Was she ever scared of Ashley, or did Ashley ever threaten her? No. To an extent, Cassandra's anxiety is palpable. There's deeper context to all of these answers. And Jensen comes back and allows her to explain herself before she leaves the stand. The prosecution called Kara Britt next, Ashley's aunt, to establish the 23-acre land to the court. Almost the entire 30 minutes she was on the stand would be her cross-examination by the defense. Kara wasn't really a useful witness in any regard, besides character. 
Ashley had had a great relationship with her aunt, who allowed her to board horses at the farm. Barisette lists all the kinds of things that her niece had done for her over the years, and Kara nods, with the same thin mouth set straight as Ashley. It's almost as if there's a slight smile somewhere deep in there. But those memories are ruined now, never lasting long and forever interrupted with the reality that her niece killed someone and buried them on her property. Barisette asks if during all their visits to the farm between Taylor missing and the discovery of her body, did she see anything unusual? Any blood? Drag marks? Anything suspicious? Kara says no, but was able to add that she wouldn't be all over the property. She just focused on the areas where they allowed wedding events. During a visit, she had done some tree trimming in an area along the fence line, but the area she cut wasn't on the photograph example he had. Jensen came up and asked Kara, You said you didn't see anything unusual. You weren't looking for a dead body, were you? No, Kara said. And a body was found out there on the farm, right? Yes. Jensen wouldn't stand for entertaining sideshows that didn't matter. Kara was here to establish that she owned the farm and that was where the body was found, and she had done just that. Even though Brandon Beatty had never met Taylor Wright, he would spend 30 minutes on the stand, establishing that he was the owner of Sticks, the pool hall where Ashley spent every single day. They met through her business, but it became more than that fairly quickly, and she started spending money on him pretty much right away into the relationship, he says. She paid the power bills, supplied the booze, the Sam Club's orders, a boat, a motorcycle, tires, anything he wanted. The most significant part of Brandon's testimony will cause Judge Shackelford to lecture the courtroom. When Jensen asks Brandon about what he knew when Taylor went missing, he says he just knows what Ashley said. That girl ran off with her husband's money. They'll never find that bitch. She's gone. An audible gasp collectively sucked the air out of the room. Shackelford scolded the audience. She would accept absolutely no reactions, or you would find yourself banned from the courtroom. Barisette establishes their timeline, August 2016 until October 2017, when she was arrested. During that time, she bought gifts for him and other people. Ashley had given him firearms after Taylor went missing, and Barisette asks if she ever specified that he needed to hide or get rid of them, and Brandon says no. There were no conditions besides do with them what you want. Barisette asks if she said the statement about Taylor in an angry way, and Brandon says no. And surprisingly with that, another major key player in Ashley's life spends a small amount of time on the stand and leaves. In a way, this is a prime display of how much Ashley worked to keep different people in the dark, sectioning them off into areas that bordered each other but never crossed paths. She told certain things to certain people, selectively creating different realities that slightly resembled one another from a distance. And where there may have been room to ask questions in the past, she just showered those people with big financial gestures. The next few people on the stand will be the bartenders at Styx, Jessica and Audrey, as well as Jessica's friend, Alexis. All three would be significant in establishing the timeline for the cocaine conversation with Ashley. Alexis was friends with Jessica and doesn't really know Ashley, but claims to have been there at the bar during the time the conversation took place. She overheard Ashley ask out loud how much cocaine it would take to kill someone, that someone wouldn't think twice if Taylor overdosed because she'd done it already. During cross-examination, Barisette pokes holes in her story, contradicting her prior statements. She's visibly nervous, and she can't remember the exact night that this happened. But Jensen gives her a chance to tell the court that she misspoke at points during her deposition. She gets nervous under pressure, but she was there for that cocaine conversation, and the media never said anything about cocaine that she saw. That was a detail she knew herself. Jessica is a medical assistant now, but at the time, she was a bartender at Styx, and she saw Ashley there every day. She would come by during the day to do money pickups, and she came by every single night, too. Being privy to the financial side of the pool hall, Jessica saw Ashley pay for the bills, buy snacks and beer for the bar, and laptops for the bartenders. 
She's also never met Taylor, but she heard Ashley say something along the lines of how this world would be a better place if Taylor wasn't here, because she wasn't a good person. And yes, she wondered out loud how much cocaine it would take to overdose. Jessica was the one who said, I don't know, probably an eight ball, and told her to shut up about it and walked away. Nobody was heavily under the influence at that point. They'd only had a couple shots at the very most. While Jessica testifies, Ashley is scribbling away at her notepad like crazy. Audrey and Ashley went to Babe's strip club and eventually came back. This was the evening of September 7th. Jessica knows because they all took a picture together on her phone later that night. Barisette clarifies with Jessica that Alexis wasn't part of this conversation. She says no, it was pretty much just the three of them. Audrey wasn't working, she was sitting with Ashley at the bar, and Alexis was down at the other end. Jessica switched between serving the two. Barisette brings up the fact that during her deposition, Jessica noticed that they were, quote, really drinking that night. She says no, they weren't really drinking, but they did drink a good amount. Barisette asks if she saw any cocaine that night, and Jessica says no. He asks if she kept socializing with Ashley after this conversation, and she says yes. Jensen's only follow-up question is if the drinking affected anything she heard that night, and Jessica says no. Audrey was the main one who Ashley had this conversation with, as well as the one who went to Babes where she allegedly did the drug deal, so she would spend 45 minutes on the stand answering rapid-fire questions for each side. She repeated the story about what Ashley had said before they went to Babes. Audrey drove. The dealer was a guy named T. He got in the car once they parked, and Ashley exchanged 250 cash. The next day, September 8th, she'd asked Ashley what she did with it. Ashley told her she had put it in Taylor's beer, but Taylor spit it out because it tasted sour. That day sticks out in her mind because she'd taken her father to the Verizon store that morning before work at 2 p.m. She called Ashley on her way to start her shift and remembered that she was short of breath, got off the phone really quickly, and said that she had to pick up a horse saddle at her farm. She was at Sticks later, in Zach's big truck, which was strange because she always drove her black Jeep or white Jeep. The stop at Sticks itself was normal. She'd always randomly stop by. But this day, she was in a hurry. She was doing work on her family's farm with the truck and left after a few minutes. Randomly, on September 13th, Ashley invited her there to see the horses, and she assumed to check on Kyle and see how he was getting along since his move. As for Taylor missing, Ashley never brought it up, and when someone else did, she didn't seem concerned at all. Of course, Barisette is hoping to smash Audrey's credibility. So far, it's been a miss with every other witness. That tends to happen when your client is a liar. He starts off with the fact that she met Taylor right. They had worked a PI case together in the past. She hung out with Taylor, even without Ashley around. But Audrey lawyered up right away. You weren't really concerned with helping your friend Taylor with all this information you had, were you? No, Audrey answered, verifying that she had refused to speak to the police until she had an attorney, and only shared this cocaine story after Ashley's arrest. She repeats a few no's without even flinching, showing the most confidence out of every witness that Jensen will clear up everything when he's done. It was only the two of them who went to Babes for the drug deal, but at no point in the night did Audrey actually see the cocaine or anything resembling a bag of cocaine. They left sticks around 1 or 2 in the morning on the 8th. Barisette points out that in order for this to have happened, Ashley would have had to see Taylor between the time she left sticks and the conversation they had that morning. Then he wraps up with a question. You went to the farm twice and there was absolutely no indication of anything unusual, right? Correct, Audrey affirms. You and Ashley had purchased cocaine together. Were you worried about getting in trouble for that? Jensen asks. Yes, Audrey says. You knew at the time when she purchased it, she intended to put it in Taylor's drink. Were you worried you'd get in trouble for that? Yes, she says. Is that why you got a lawyer? Yes, ma'am. Now, Mr. Barisette says you didn't actually see any cocaine, but you went with the intention to buy cocaine, met a cocaine dealer, and watched Ashley exchange something hand-to-hand for 250 cash, right? Yes, Audrey says. And the farm property. It's huge. Were you looking for anything unusual while you were there, like blood or a dead body? 
No, Audrey tells the court. No further questions, Judge. Jensen smiles as she walks back to her desk. It was finally time for Zach Wright to spend his 20 minutes on the stand, establishing how they all met and that Ashley had a degree in criminal justice. Like his interview, he tells the court that he didn't know about any of the money dealings, he didn't know that Taylor had been added to a bank account he shared with his wife, or how many bank accounts she even had. Zach also didn't know that Ashley was financially supporting Brandon in any way or helping out with his business. The day Taylor went missing was accounted for in his alibi, and he noted that later Ashley did attend a wedding with him on September 8th, but left shortly after the ceremony. Barisette gets Zach to specify that Ashley was only a CSI from 2005 to 2006, long before they even started dating in 2011, implying that those specialty skills had expired somehow. Through questioning, Zach confirms that Ashley suffered from back problems due to a car accident and had trouble lifting heavy objects. There had been nothing unusual about her behavior, and she apparently left the wedding early to go solve an emergency with one of her machines. And James comes up, specifically all of the physical and heavy-duty labor that he's done for Ashley in the past, like moving boxes and building their deck. With a quick follow-up question, Jensen asks Zach, You testify that you didn't see Ashley lift any heavy objects, correct? Yes. Fair to say, you didn't see her lift anything heavy in your presence. Yes, ma'am. When Kyle was brought up for nearly an hour on the stand, Jensen wanted to pull out all the stops before the defense had their chance to speak. It was crucial for the jury to understand his timeline and alibi. Kyle wasn't close with his cousin Ashley, but they reconnected when he moved here for college. He didn't see her at the farm that often. The horses are self-sufficient. There's fences, tons of room, plenty of grass. She wouldn't need to come by and care for them too frequently. On September 8th, he attended a funeral with his aunt. Nobody was at the farm all day, and he didn't see Ashley at any point, although she had asked him and a couple other family members if they would be around. He didn't return until sometime near 10 or 11 p.m. The next day, Ashley had texted him at 7 in the morning, saying, I'm at your place. Instinctively, Kyle replied, no, you're not, because Ashley was never awake that early, let alone across town at the family farm. Sure enough, when he got up, she was there. He assumed she was just checking on the horses. Kyle had never met Taylor, had never heard anything about her money or belongings being stored at the farm property, and Ashley never brought her up. When it came to her physical limitations, yes, he's aware of her back problems, but he's seen her assist in lifting jukeboxes and pool tables without struggling all the time. Barisette can't outright accuse Kyle of being involved or imply that someone Kyle knew was involved, but he attempts to in a long-winded effort that's most likely lost on the jury. He brings up the fact that they were close once he moved. Ashley was a good person and a good cousin to him. Barisette is intelligent. He likes to attempt emotional control over Ashley's family members by using her character as an example of how there's no way she could do this. And Kyle hadn't really gotten close with Ashley. They got drunk a couple times together, went to a football game, nothing deep. And all that time on the farm, wow, he never saw anything suspicious? He wants to give context, but Shackelford interrupts him. Just yes or no. It's not that hard. They're just making it hard, she snaps. But in a way, it's one of the most difficult things in the world. To bite your tongue and sit silently while someone you don't know implies that you're a liar, that you did something wrong, or that a murderer is innocent. It's a heartbreaking process to testify against a family member that you once believed you knew. Jensen wraps up by asking if Kyle had ever asked Ashley to do work on the farm involving concrete or soil. No. Were you ever looking for anything weird on the property? No. Did you ever pay attention to the fence line? No, it's on the backside of the farm. The police were out there for hours and hours before they found anything, correct? Yes. 
The defense obviously had a strategy to pick at the details, because understandably, that's what it comes down to in a trial. But unfortunately, they missed the mark. They argued that the potting soil and concrete that Ashley was seen buying right after Taylor went missing wasn't the same as what was used to bury her. The concrete was textured, and Taylor had been found in smooth concrete. The prosecution would call their bluff, and even have the Home Depot employee testify. She had asked for fast-setting concrete that day, apparently for a flower bed, and it was specified to set as a smooth texture because it was a fine dust powder. The defense would show the CCTV footage of Ashley on September 9th. She'd asked the employee for help getting it into her car, a service most customers would take advantage of given such a large purchase. Nonetheless, it wouldn't be their last attempt to portray Ashley as injured and meek. Ashley's doctor would be called to verify past MRI scans, showing disc herniation and shoulder injuries. Her mother would testify about how she walked differently after a car accident and never lifted anything heavy that she saw anyway. A friend of Ashley's also took the stand to testify that Ashley would ask for help when heavy things needed to be moved or lifted. All this to say, Ashley couldn't possibly have moved a dead body. And finally, to wrap up the random witnesses, the defense would ask the groundskeeper at the Brit Farm if he'd noticed anything unusual during his visits to tend to the lawn. But Jensen wouldn't let the jury forget that this wasn't just some little old plot of land. The farm was 26 acres. One acre is a little smaller than a football field. Even when they'd been looking for a dead body, it still took specialists and cadaver dogs hours to find remains. It was a nice attempt from the defense, but compared to the pile of circumstantial evidence against their client, it meant very little. In a bold move, Shackelford lectures the court, mainly its witnesses, for how long it's been taking to get this far. She's repeatedly had to remind every witness to answer strictly yes or no, even if their emotional reaction is to over-explain. It's taken days to get to the investigation part of the witness list, and she's concerned about a hurricane headed their way for Labor Day weekend. She assures the jury that she's been committed to getting them out by Friday, but it's not looking like it. With hours of interrogation to still discuss, she asks if the jury will do a few extra hours overtime for the next couple of days. Graciously, they oblige. Different members of the investigation team would testify about their part in making the arrest. A computer analyst explained the process of extracting the cell phone data, even what had been deleted. Barisette pointed out that the police didn't have a search warrant for her phone. Ashley had just given it to them willingly, with no issue. As the interrogation would be played in full, people who had known Ashley, some of them for their entire lives, would see a side of her on that screen that was almost impossible to comprehend. How easily the lies rolled off her tongue, her laughing, almost flirtatious and carefree energy. They also had surveillance video on September 8th at Tom Thumb gas station. It was 11.48 a.m., Ashley's on her cell phone buying a couple of things. She even uses a points card as she checks out. This was when Ashley had claimed to be getting Taylor a drink while she waited in the truck. But Ashley was clearly alone. The jury would hear about the search for Taylor's body at the farm. It took about four or five hours for the dogs to locate her remains beneath potting soil, concrete, garbage bags, and a hammock. Very quickly, an officer on the search saw a portion of a human skull exposed in the ground. The forensic team found Taylor's bullet necklace, some hair left near the head, and a bullet in the back of her skull. Even scientifically, the murder of Taylor Wright had been a cold-blooded execution. She most likely never saw it coming. And whoever could? Who would ever guess that their closest friend was plotting to take their life and toss them away like they were trash? After a long week of exhausting and traumatizing details, the friends and family of both Ashley and Taylor sat in the courtroom emotionally wrecked by their new reality. No matter what the verdict would be, every single person walked away with their own custom nightmare sentence, blindsided by carnage. 
nothing would change what Ashley MacArthur had done. Within just a week, it's time for closing arguments and jury deliberation. Judge Jan Shackelford has maintained the utmost strictness when it comes to straightforward answers and testimony, pushing everyone to wrap things up before a hurricane arrives on Labor Day weekend. Many public viewers of the trial were surprised at how rushed the process felt. In closing arguments, Jensen will lay out a crystal-clear timeline for the jury. In July 2017, Taylor withdrew money from a bank account that she shared with her ex-husband, and just two months later, she was dead. In this trial, you've heard a lot about Taylor Wright, but in this trial, she is a victim. She's been accused of cheating, accused of stealing, and accused of trying cocaine three times. But Taylor Wright isn't the one on trial who's accused for murder. As Taylor's close friend, Ashley had been privy to a personal conversation that she had with Cassandra, and then Ashley used that conversation as a way to manipulate a story away from her guilt, leading law enforcement on wild goose chases. Furthermore, when she heard that Taylor had used cocaine, instead of helping her friend, Ashley attempted to instigate an overdose. Jensen explains that it may have been strange for them to see her bring up witness after witness to talk about all of the not-so-great things Taylor had done, but that's exactly why she did it, because those things aren't going to be used to deflect and distract from the facts of this case. They show proof that Ashley was using every advantage she had to try and get away with murder for money, money that she had been asked to hold, not spend. August 10th, Taylor's name was added to the bank account. August 16th, her $34,000 check was deposited by Ashley. The next day, Ashley transferred that to a number of different accounts. Between August 29th and September 7th, Taylor is constantly asking Ashley to take her to the bank, but it's just excuse after excuse. And on September 8th at 11.28 a.m., a last text message is sent to Cassandra. From then on, we have surveillance of Ashley alone at the gas station. And the next day, when she spends $56 on potting soil and concrete to bury Taylor's body. Ashley drives to Britt Road, where she walks thousands of steps, getting rid of evidence and even putting miracle Grow on top. Somehow, Ashley and Taylor's phones are together through all of this, at a wedding she attends later, and also at Ashley's home that night. Every time someone tries to contact Taylor, it pings at Ashley's house. And during the time that Taylor's missing, Ashley is still depositing checks in her name with a forged signature. She gave Brandon the guns as a gift right away and told him she didn't care about what he did with them because she knew that he sold and traded guns all the time. And of course, let's not forget Ashley's own words. Her interviews are the biggest piece of damning evidence because they show her constant lies, her backtracking, and avoidance. On September 15th, she told the police that they went to the farm in Milton. On September 18th, she was asked about a second farm and she said yes, there was one, but Taylor had never been there. She lied and pretended she couldn't remember the address of the property that is named after her family. On the 24th, she called looking for updates and said that Taylor was putting everyone's life through hell. She called again on the 2nd, looking for updates, and told them to check treatment facilities, once again hoping they weren't on her tail. But finally, on October 19th, we see the confrontation of phone records and bank accounts. Although deleted text messages between her and the dealer at Babes, Ashley had tried giving Taylor a beer that morning with the cocaine, but she spit it out. 24 hours later, she was burying her friend that she shot in the back of the head. Why? She said it herself during an interview. Taylor is not an easy target. Ladies and gentlemen, Ashley MacArthur had the means, the motive, and she killed Taylor Wright. Then she tried to cover it up with lies, concrete, and potting soil. If the trial had a mic drop moment, Jensen got it here. Barisat spends the majority of his time reminding the jury who has the burden of proof in this trial, and that when they took an oath as a juror, they promised not to be swayed by their preconceived notions, and also the fact that Ashley's chosen not to testify. The only things that are to be held rightfully against her are the facts. He talks about how impossibly tough it would be to move a dead body. 
And where was all the blood, all the forensics, and the signs that should come from killing someone? He says all the state has is circumstantial stories. What about the cocaine, the lies Taylor was telling, the sneaky things she was doing? At this point, Barisette may have been better off exaggerating Ashley's best attributes than demonizing Taylor's worst ones, but that's the tactic he went for. Jensen's up for one last round, stating that Ashley is a retired CSI agent. She knows what people look for, how to clean up a scene, and nobody was looking for a body until six weeks after she buried it. If there were things she had forgotten, she had time to think it through. And moving the body, there was plenty of farm equipment, there's something to be said for adrenaline. She could have been dragged in the hammock, since her shoes were found with the body but not on her. This is a woman who moved jukeboxes and pool tables, who was athletic and prided herself on that. Ashley wasn't some meek and mild little thing, and she made sure nobody was at that farm so she could have hours to dispose of whatever she needed to. Even cadaver dogs and specialists didn't find the body at first. It was well hidden on a massive 23 acres. There's no way of knowing the exact spot where she shot Taylor, but she was smart enough to bury her on the furthest side of the property, where nobody ever had a reason to go. And she went back and covered her tracks again and again, multiple times. Who cares if someone helped her load the potting soil and the concrete she bought at Home Depot? When she got to the farm at Britt Road, she unloaded it herself, alone. You don't need forensic proof or DNA to find someone guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, Jensen finished. So don't let the defense trick you into thinking that's the case. And with that, Ashley MacArthur would wait to hear her fate. Before the verdict was announced, Judge Shackelford thanked the jury for their time and commitment. As is protocol with any courtroom, she reminded everyone that she'd accept absolutely no reactions whatsoever. After three hours of deliberation, Ashley MacArthur was found guilty of murder in the first degree. As she stood during the decision, she only let out the slightest flinch at the word guilty, blinked quickly a few times, and didn't show one ounce of emotion. Off to the side behind her, the cameras in the courtroom catch Cassandra's face, wet with tears, broken with despair and relief. Shackelford takes the time to continue thanking the jury and staff, explaining protocols and processes after the trial. Ashley is swallowing slowly over and over, opens her mouth a few times to exhale. She looks like she might throw up. Six minutes after she's been found guilty, she wipes her eyes, trying not to focus on the reality of this moment, wanting to wait and not give any vulnerability or fear to the satisfaction of the cameras. Since neither side is opposed to sentencing right there, Shackelford hands down the mandatory minimum of 25 years, along with a 327-day sentence to run concurrently for the firearm charges and a $518 fine. A life for a life. In 2021, Ashley would appeal, seeking a new trial. Her defense team had tried to suppress her interviews with the detectives and her cell phone records. They also wanted Taylor's text messages and possible statements thrown out as hearsay. Both motions were denied. During the trial, a photograph of Ashley holding a gun that wasn't the murder weapon had accidentally flashed on the screen for a second while the state was looking through evidence. This was clearly prejudice, and they even motioned for a mistrial then. Again, it was denied. However, the jury was instructed to view this material with caution, taking the context into mind. But the court would find that there was no abuse of discretion when it came to the photograph. Much testimony from multiple witnesses had brought up Ashley owning firearms, and there were other photographs of her in camouflage, holding guns. One photograph for a split second barely warranted a new trial. And as for the statements Ashley made, the ones that related to the case and her conviction were all made after she was read her Miranda rights. 
And Taylor's messages and statements to other witnesses were not hearsay, as they were relevant in establishing a timeline, motive, and intent for murder. The courts would uphold its original sentence. Ashley couldn't cheat or steal her way out of this one. Despite their vitriolic separating, Jeff had always held this half-hope, half-assumption that eventually they would get over their issues and come together for Drake. Their son deserved two happy parents who loved him enough to put things aside and watch him walk across the stage at graduation or share a dance and a few laughs at his wedding someday. All three of them were robbed of that. He's since remarried, but through honest integrity, Jeff would always speak highly of Taylor during interviews. A flawed human, that she was, but a ferociously loving mother is the person who Drake will remember her as. Taylor would have never left her son. She wanted full custody and, if anything, he was the reason she was finally willing to put her stubbornness aside and return the money. She knew that the faster she could get on her feet and display some sort of consistent stability, that would mean more time with Drake. Even her poor choices were made out of an intoxicating mix of fear and love. Life would go on for Cassandra as well, who continued to flourish in her career. In 2020, the Florida Society of Health and Physical Educators would award her the Council of District Administrators Award for her outstanding work, and she's continued to earn accolades, both in her career and personal life. Her passion for supporting her community was only strengthened by the loss of Taylor. She honors her memory by living life to the fullest, by never taking a single moment for granted, and sometimes by a little out-of-the-ordinary spontaneity that reminds her of the woman she loved briefly but deeper than there are words for. In a way, it was Cass who had witnessed the true essence of Taylor Wright, because she saw not just who she was, but the potential of who she could be. This messy and fumbling girl, filling the shoes of a woman who was both reactionary and thoughtful, moving through life with suffering and grace. The whirlwind of her new normal was starting to settle, but Taylor wouldn't get the chance to rebuild what was broken. Or maybe her amends have been carried out after all, not how anyone ever imagined, of course, but still, becoming a much bigger force tied to a purpose that ignites an empathetic motivation to do better, to fix what needs mending before it's too late. How painful it is to be alive, the burn and bruising of wrong turns made in haste. But how lucky are we to still feel the relief of forgiveness, the rush of unconditional love, and the dawn of another ordinary morning in a life we will never quite quench the thirst for.